Episode 28 Bits and Bites In the silence following the last echoes of the war, Alan Turing, Britain's unsung hero, was a ship untethered. As the urgency of Bletchley Park and the breathless race against the Enigma machine receded into the past, he found himself adrift on a sea of quiet normality. Post-war Manchester was a bustling metropolis, bearing the scars of the past with a certain rough pride. Alan, still with a government position, but bereft of any true purpose, walked the streets of the city that hummed with industry, possibility and new beginnings. At a local chess club gathering Alan frequented, he tried to keep his strategic mind honed. He enjoyed discussions that ranged from the philosophical to the mundane. One evening, in a spirited debate about determinism, Alan found himself drawn into an argument with George, a charismatic teacher with a flair for rhetoric. But Alan, George insisted, his eyes sparkling, don't you see that if we can predict the moves on a chessboard, we can predict human behaviour? The world is a larger game, after all. Alan considered this. He had spent the war predicting the unpredictable, making sense of chaos, but applying that to human nature, it wasn't as simple. He enjoyed this intellectual wrestling, though. It was a welcome distraction from the void left by his wartime work. He also took up teaching at the University of Manchester, finding a certain satisfaction in the curious, wide-eyed gazes of his students. Yet the problems of academia were distant, ungrounded, compared to the urgency he had grown accustomed to during the war. Slowly, he started noticing a pattern, an undercurrent that drove the post-war society around him. It wasn't as explicit as code-breaking, yet it was everywhere, from the bread ration lines and the haggling at the fishmongers to the lively pub debates about the post-war future, the economy and the rationing still in effect. A legacy of the war, not of a shortage anymore, but to stop the country importing too many products, when the currency, the pound sterling, was on uneven ground. Alan, ever the puzzle solver, felt a new challenge presenting itself, one rooted deeply in the fabric of this post-war reality. A challenge he would eventually come to grasp as he ventured into the murky, chaotic waters of economics. But for now, Alan was simply living, observing, and unknowingly standing on the precipice of a new intellectual journey. For Alan, life outside the realm of ciphers and codes was far from straightforward. He was a man of unique tastes, 
his personal preferences, often diverging from the societal norms of the time. In the confines of his own home, he relished the solitude that allowed him to explore his mind unapologetically. Yet, even in his solitude, he couldn't ignore the palpable weight of expectations and judgments from the outside world. His eccentric habits and unwavering honesty often raised eyebrows, leading to whispers behind polite smiles. This fueled an undercurrent of alienation that flowed beneath his engagements with the world, a constant reminder that he was different. At a party held by a colleague, he found himself more interested in the mathematical patterns of the wallpaper than in the bustling conversations around him. He preferred the company of his thoughts over forced small talk and societal pleasantries. His mind, though always buzzing with ideas and theories, sometimes made him an island in a sea of chattering minds. Despite this, he did try to connect. He danced awkwardly with Sarah from the lab, shared a smoke with the janitor, even chuckled at Professor Klein's dry jokes. But these attempts were just that, attempts. In these moments of introspection, Alan often found himself contemplating his place within this vast social tapestry. Was he merely a misfit, or was it the world around him being misaligned? Could society, like a mathematical equation, be logically broken down and understood? As the days rolled into weeks, Alan's keen mind started connecting the dots. It was the mundane rhythms of life, working, eating, bartering, living, that drove society. And, at the heart of it all, as essential yet elusive as a cipher, was something most didn't question, something Alan had yet to understand, the silent, guiding hand of economics. The austerity of post-war Britain was all too apparent to Alan. The streets, once vibrant and bustling, were now filled with quiet despair. The buildings bore the scars of conflict. The people bore the weight of loss. He saw families queuing for rations, men jobless and disheartened, children playing amidst the rubble, innocence intermingled with desolation. And yet, amidst the ruin, Alan saw potential. The resilient spirit of the people, their unwavering hope for a better tomorrow. It reminded him of his faith in technology, particularly in the potential of machines and computation. His wartime experience had revealed the power of computing, not only in cracking codes, but in managing and organising vast amounts of information. His mind was brimming with the possibilities of how this technology could revolutionise everyday life. It could bring order to chaos, 
streamline the complexities, transform society for the better. A utopian vision began to form in his mind. A world where machines and humans lived symbiotically, where technology was not a threat but a tool for progress. In his small home, amidst half-assembled mechanical parts and towers of academic papers, Alan often lost himself in deep thought. He contemplated the state of the world, the capacity of computing, and the intricate interweaving of society. His gaze would occasionally drift towards the outside world, the laundry woman arguing over a miscalculation, the baker distributing bread with a careful tally, the factory workers clocking in and out like clockwork. It was a world operating under certain principles, systems and patterns, much like the algorithms he loved. The challenge lay in understanding these patterns, breaking them down into a language that both man and machine could understand and benefit from. Unbeknownst to him, these observations and ruminations were the initial steps towards a transformative idea, an idea that would redefine his understanding of the world, even as it remained a complex puzzle yet to be solved. But for now, Alan Turing was just a man contemplating a world on the cusp of change. At the university, Alan was a figure of both intrigue and admiration. His lectures were not only a transfer of knowledge, but a peek into his vibrant mind, a place where ideas bloomed and logic reigned supreme. One day, as a light drizzle cast a rhythmic patter against the classroom windows, Alan was in the middle of explaining the workings of the recently proposed Manchester Mark I machine. His chalk danced across the blackboard, leaving in its wake a network of symbols and figures that seemed to hold a hidden harmony. A student, a bright-eyed lad named Peter, raised his hand. Professor Turing, do you think these machines, computers as you call them, could replace us one day? The classroom fell into a hush, all eyes on Alan. No, Peter, Alan responded, a faint smile playing on his lips. They won't replace us. They'll empower us. The conviction in his voice left an indelible impression on the students, fueling their curiosity and propelling animated discussions long after the lecture ended. Outside the university, his life was less predictable. One evening, he was invited to a gathering by a fellow mathematician, Hugh Alexander, at a quaint little pub in the heart of Manchester. The venue was brimming with academics, artists and politicians, an eclectic mix of post-war Britain. There was lively debate, playful banter and intense discussions. Alan, however, found himself 
in an unlikely conversation with a young painter named Miriam. She was interested in the idea of artificial intelligence, a concept that Alan was passionately exploring. Their discussions traversed the realms of science, art and philosophy. It ended with Miriam asking him to pose for a portrait. The idea was amusing, and in the spirit of the moment, Alan agreed. The result was an image that beautifully captured his quiet intensity and the ever-present twinkle of curiosity in his eyes. In these interactions, in his teachings, and in his explorations, Alan was slowly weaving together the threads of a grand idea. An idea that would challenge the norms of society and revolutionise the world. Life unfolded in a series of codes for Alan, each day a new puzzle to decipher. His fascination with computing grew with each passing day, as did his vision of its potential to transform society. One day, Alan was invited to a radio interview, an opportunity to demystify the concept of computers for the average listener. He prepared meticulously, keen on making the abstract tangible and the intimidating accessible. In the cosy confines of the BBC radio station, Alan spoke of machines and their potential with eloquence and enthusiasm. His voice, usually reserved and introspective, resonated with conviction through the microphone, carrying his vision into homes across Manchester. In the heart of the BBC radio station, surrounded by towering shelves of vinyl records and antiquated broadcasting equipment, Alan waited for the signal from the station director. When the red light finally flickered on, he took a deep breath, adjusted the microphone and began to speak. Good evening, Manchester, he started, his voice steady and clear. Today we're going to embark on a fascinating journey, a journey into the future, if you will. And our vessel? It's not a spaceship or a time machine. It's something we call a computer. He went on to describe the concept of a computer using the everyday metaphor of a bakery. Imagine, he said, if you had a magical bakery, which, once you set the right instructions, could produce any kind of pastry you want. A computer operates in a similar manner. We feed it instructions, which we call a program, and it performs the task accordingly. Alan succeeded in taking complex concepts and making them accessible and intriguing for the average listener. He painted a vivid picture of a world where computers could handle everything from logistics to education, where technology wasn't a threat but a collaborator in progress. His words were both reassuring and inspiring. No, he declared, responding to a listener's question about machines taking over. Computers won't replace us. They don't possess desires or ambitions. They are tools, immensely powerful ones, which, 
in the right hands can solve problems we deem unsolvable today. As you see, Alan continued during the interview, his words threading together with an increasing fervour. These computers are not limited to simple arithmetic or code breaking. They have the potential to address problems far more complex and wide-reaching. The station director leaned forward, intrigued. Could you elaborate on that, Alan? What kind of problems are we talking about? Alan took a moment to gather his thoughts, then said, Imagine, if you will, the issue of food distribution. We have enough food to feed everyone, yet people starve. It's a problem of logistics, of allocation. A computer, given the right data and instructions, optimises this process, reducing waste and ensuring food reaches those who need it. He leaned back, letting the implications of his words settle in before continuing. Or consider education. Imagine a system that could adapt to each individual's learning style, pace and interest. Computers could enable such personalised education, making learning more effective and enjoyable. Listeners across Manchester found themselves leaning into their radios, captivated by the possibility of such transformative change. One day, Alan said, his voice ringing with quiet conviction. These machines could aid us in managing our cities, optimising transport routes, predicting weather patterns more accurately, even simplifying bureaucratic processes. The possibilities are immense, limited only by our imagination and our willingness to embark on this journey into the uncharted territories of computation. The room was silent as Alan continued, his words lingering in the charged air. He was igniting imaginations, sparking discussions and challenging conventions. He had presented a glimpse of a world where man and machine could work together to address society's most pressing issues. A world that now felt tantalisingly within reach. As the interview progressed, Alan began to delve into more abstract territory. The possibilities he proposed were both startling and tantalising, hovering on the edge of science fiction, yet grounded in the principles of computer science. And perhaps, he mused, a far-off look in his eyes, the reach of these machines could extend even further, deeper, into the fabric of our societies. The station director, caught up in Alan's infectious enthusiasm, prompted, what do you mean, Alan? Alan took a moment, formulating his thoughts carefully. Computers, he began, are ultimately tools for the manipulation and management of information. They can store, retrieve and process data with a speed and accuracy that far outstrip human capabilities. He paused, allowing his words to sink in. What if, he proposed, we could leverage this to reshape the very structures of our society. 
If we could decentralise power, not in a chaotic manner, but in a structured, efficient way, controlled and facilitated by these computers. The benefits of central control, but with the adaptability and resilience of distributed systems. Across the city, listeners were held captive by his words. There was a certain magic in the way he articulated his thoughts, and many listeners found themselves thinking about societal structures in a way they never had before. Imagine a society, and continued, where inefficiencies are minimised, where every action, every decision, is based on a vast interconnected network of data, analysed and optimised by computers. Where every individual has the power to contribute and to benefit. Alan took a brief pause, collecting his thoughts before continuing, his voice brimming with restrained excitement. Think of a society where each person's contribution, however small or seemingly insignificant, is acknowledged, considered and included. Not by a group of humans with their inherent biases and limitations, but by an objective, efficient machine. He was careful to ground these grand ideas in the reality of what computers could currently do, yet he left room for imagination. He wove an enchanting narrative that stretched the possibilities of computing into a vision of societal transformation, painting a world that seemed to emerge right from the pages of a science fiction novel. And it's not just about the grand ideas, he added, it's also about the small conveniences. Picture your daily tasks, automated and streamlined. No more long queues, no more tedious paperwork. Computers can free us from the mundane and give us more time for what truly matters. Learning, creating, living. His passion was infectious. Even the station director, initially sceptical of the abstract conception of computers, was drawn into Alan Turing's vision of the future. Alan then shared his belief in the grand scheme computers could help humanity reach a level of objectivity and fairness that was otherwise unobtainable. Through the emotional lens of a machine, we could analyse and optimise our societal systems, reducing discrimination, inequality and inefficiency. Alan's gaze turned inward as he reflected on the state of post-war Britain. The country was struggling to rebuild, to heal from the ravages of war. Unemployment was high, industries were crippled, and the economy was in a precarious state. We live in an era of great change, Alan began, his tone tinged with somberness, yet underlined by optimism. Our country, fresh from a devastating war, is grappling with numerous challenges. Poverty, unemployment, resource scarcity. These are issues that we confront every day, and though they may seem overwhelming, I believe that we have in our hands the tool that can help us address these problems. The computer. His assertion was bold, and left the listeners on the other side of the radio in anticipation. 
Consider unemployment, he continued. With the right data and algorithms, we could create a system that matches job seekers with potential employers based on skills, interests, and other variables. It could streamline the job search process and help get people back to work more efficiently. He went on to elaborate how computing could potentially rejuvenate industries. If we can use computers to optimise production processes, we could breathe new life into our industries. They could identify inefficiencies, predict demand, manage resources, making industries more productive and less wasteful. And it's not just the economic issues, he added. Even social problems like housing shortages and uneven resource distribution could be mitigated with the help of computing. Imagine a system where housing allocation is done based on the need and availability, optimised to ensure that everyone has a roof over their head. Alan's voice held a note of profound conviction. His vision was ambitious, audacious even, yet to those who listened, it did not seem beyond the realm of possibility. This was not merely wishful thinking. It was a future that Alan Turing was determined to bring into reality. His words rang out into the night, an invitation to all of Britain to join him in shaping a future where computers held the key to societal transformation. When the interview concluded, the station director shook Alan's hand warmly. That was splendid, Alan, truly. You've made a daunting topic approachable, and even, dare I say, exciting. Alan's gaze turned inward as he reflected on the state of post-war Britain. The country was struggling to rebuild, to heal from the ravages of war. Unemployment was high, industries were crippled, and the economy was in a precarious state. As Alan exited the station, he walked into the cool Manchester night. The war was over, but its shadow still stretched across the city, visible in the queues outside Russian shops, the weary expressions on people's faces, and the evident scarcity of resources. In the quiet of the night, Alan observed these remnants of a war-torn Britain. His heart ached for his countrymen and women who had endured so much and yet was still bound by circumstances beyond their control. As he walked past a Russian shop, he noted the long line of people waiting patiently for their share. His mind flashed back to his words in the radio interview, his vision of a society where resources could be allocated efficiently, reducing scarcity and promoting equity. He pondered on the irony of it all. Here they were, a country rich in resources, yet plagued by shortages. The problem was not a lack of resources, but an inefficiency in their allocation. His mind began to churn. Drawing upon the principles of computer science, he considered algorithms, optimization, fairness. His mind danced around these concepts, attempting to design a hypothetical system that could solve this resource allocation problem. He knew it wasn't going to be easy. Such a system would require extensive data, a sophisticated algorithm, and the computing power to process it all. It was a challenge that excited him. It seemed like a worthy problem to solve, 
a real-world application of the computing theories he had dedicated his life to studying. As he disappeared into the quiet night, Alan was lost in his thoughts. He was a man with a vision, a vision that had the potential to transform Britain and perhaps the world. For now, that vision was just a seed, but with time, effort and the power of computing, Alan Turing believed it could grow into something extraordinary. In the quiet solitude of his small home office, Alan Turing sat hunched over a pile of papers, a stub of a pencil clutched in his hand. Diagrams, formulas and hastily jotted notes filled the pages, each a fragment of his burgeoning idea. He contemplated the problem of resource allocation, mulling over various solutions and dismissing them just as quickly. A centralised system, perhaps, where all decisions were made by a single entity. No, that would be too susceptible to corruption and bias. A purely free market driven approach, that seemed unfair and would likely result in unequal distribution. His mind ran through a litany of possible algorithms. Linear programming for optimization. it could work but would require detailed, accurate data for all resources and individuals, something near impossible in the current era. Game theory, then, with individuals acting as rational, self-interested agents. Perhaps, but there were too many variables, too much unpredictability. Frustrated, he pushed the papers away, rubbing his temples. He could feel the tendrils of a headache beginning to fall. Yet he was far from ready to give up. He stood up, pacing around the small room, his mind a whirlwind of thoughts. Every dead end only spurred him on. Every rejected idea only served to fuel his determination. The problem of resource allocation was a complex one. Perhaps one of the most complex problems he'd ever tried to tackle. And yet, he couldn't shake off the feeling that the solution lay within reach, just beyond his grasp. Alan Turing found himself at an impasse. The tools and theories he had at his disposal felt inadequate for the monumental task he had set for himself. He was grappling with a problem that was more than just theoretical. It had tangible, real-world implications that could potentially revolutionise society. Game theory. The concept intrigued him. The idea that individuals, acting in their own self-interest, could collectively arrive at an outcome that could be, if not ideal, at least acceptable to all. It was a field that had captured his interest during the war, when working on strategic problems, and now it was resurfacing in his thoughts. He mulled over this, doodling on the edge of his papers, his mind churning. Was it possible to build a system on this theory? Could they rely on the rationality of individuals for an optimal outcome? His thoughts then drifted to the current system of resource allocation. In post-war Britain, the government controlled the majority of resources, distributing them to the population through rationing. 
The system was bureaucratic and fraught with inefficiencies. It was a far cry from the decentralised dynamic system that he envisaged. Could he use game theory to improve the current system? The idea was tempting, but he quickly realised the challenges. It would require a level of transparency in communication that was not yet possible. And yet, it was a step in the right direction. A centralised system had its advantages, simplicity, controllability and a degree of fairness. But it was also rigid and lacked flexibility to adapt to changing circumstances or individual needs. The more he thought about it, the more he realised that a hybrid approach might be the best solution. A system that combined the predictability and control of a centralised system with the dynamism and adaptability of a decentralised one. Alan's study was a refuge of sorts, cluttered yet comforting, filled with papers, books and odd trinkets from his travels. The soft glow from the desk lamp bathed through in a warm light as he leaned back in his chair, eyes scanning the room idly, mind still abuzz with thoughts on resource allocation. His gaze fell upon an old, worn-out book near the window, its title barely visible, The Theory of Money and Credit by Ludwig von Mises. It was a book he had read in his youth, a time when his curiosity knew no bounds. Back then, the book had piqued his interest, the concept of money as an abstract representation of value, the embodiment of human trust. Now it triggered something else. His thoughts shifted from resources to money. Money was, in essence, a resource, perhaps the most flexible one. It was an intermediary, enabling the exchange of goods and services, allowing for the allocation of resources across society. His mind began to race. Could money be the key to this problem? The realisation hit him like a thunderbolt. If he could somehow create a system that efficiently managed money, it could, in turn, ensure efficient resource allocation. His mind now a whirlwind of thoughts, he felt a surge of excitement. The idea was still raw, nebulous, but it was a step forward, a potential path to explore. It was as if a fog had cleared, unveiling a new direction. His hand reached for a pencil, fingers flying across the paper, scribbling down his thoughts before they could escape. Money. It was not the solution, but perhaps it was a part of it. As the evening slipped into the night, Alan Turing, armed with a new perspective, delved deeper into the labyrinth of his thoughts. His desk was a flurry of activity, filled with a mess of jotted notes and doodles, his pencil dancing over the page in sync with his mind's rapid contemplation. Money as a concept was complex in its simplicity, a universally recognised entity that acted as a bridge between needs and resources, between wants and capabilities. His mind drew him back to the game theory concepts he had been wrestling with. Could money be the game's facilitator, the means by which individual self-interest 
could be directed towards collective welfare. A standardised, universally recognised system of transactions that operated on trust and mutual benefit. The image of long lines at the ration shops flashed in his mind. The frustration of the people, the sense of desolation. Money was supposed to solve this, acting as a fair and efficient medium of exchange. But the reality was far from ideal. It was subject to inflation, manipulation and a host of other complexities that rendered it less than perfect. Turing's mind teetered on the brink of an idea. What if money could be regulated by a computer? An algorithm that ensured fairness, that guarded against corruption, that adapted to changing needs. It was a wild thought, but no more outlandish than some of his other ideas. He scribbled this down, underlining it twice, a computer-regulated monetary system. It was a thought that made him pause, made him consider the possibilities. But it was late, his mind was weary, and his eyes were beginning to protest against the onslaught of thoughts. Alan decided to leave the idea for the morrow, the seed of his revolutionary idea planted, ready to be nurtured in the fertile soil of his mind. As he extinguished the desk lamp, the room was swallowed by the dark, a fitting metaphor for the unknown journey he was embarking on. The faint light from the street lamps outside, filtering through his window, he retreated into his dreams. Thoughts of money, computers and a better world tucked away in the recesses of his mind. In the harsh light of day, Alan revisited his notes from the previous night. He scrutinised his hastily scribbled thoughts on a computer-regulated monetary system, contemplating the implications. There was a kernel of an idea there, but he was painfully aware of his limitations in the field of economics. His understanding of money was primarily conceptual, built on logic and mathematical principles. The reality, however, was a tangled web of socio-political forces and human behaviour that he barely understood. Alan mulled over the problem, his gaze wandering to the worn-out copy of the theory of money and credit that had sparked his epiphany. Perhaps he needed a fresh perspective, a better understanding of the intricacies of money and economics. The name of a man flashed in his mind, a man who was at the forefront of economics, whose theories were the foundation of modern economic thought, John Maynard Keynes. It's a daunting proposition. Keynes was a man of great intellect, a giant in his field, and Alan felt a pang of trepidation at the thought of discussing his nascent, unconventional idea with him. But he also knew that if anyone could help him navigate this labyrinth, it would be Keynes. Resolute. Alan set about arranging a meeting with Keynes. He composed a letter detailing his desire to discuss certain aspects of monetary theory and its application in computer science, careful to keep his revolutionary ideas hidden for now. Dear Mr Keynes, I trust this letter finds you in good health. 
My name is Alan Shoring, a mathematician by training and a crypt analyst by recent profession during the war. I am presently working on computing machinery at the Victoria University of Manchester. Recently, in my contemplations on the potential of these machines, I have found myself drawn into the realm of economics, specifically the functions and role of money in society. Your esteemed work in the field has often provided me with food for thought, and I find myself needing to understand these concepts in greater depth to progress my own work. I am particularly interested in understanding the application of your theories in the context of automated systems. I feel that the concepts of economics, particularly money and resource allocation, could greatly benefit from the introduction of automated computation, an area that I believe to be the future of problem solving. I understand the audaciousness of this concept, and it is with humility that I reach out to you. I hope that we can arrange a meeting to discuss the possible intersection of our fields. I am in no doubt that your insights could prove invaluable in guiding my ideas and would greatly appreciate the opportunity to engage in this discourse with you. Thank you for considering my request. I look forward to the possibility of discussing these ideas further with you. Yours sincerely, Alan Turing. As he sealed the envelope, Alan felt a strange mix of anticipation and anxiety. He was stepping out of his comfort zone, venturing into uncharted territory, but it was a step he needed to take. Once he finished, he placed the letter in an envelope and sealed it. Alan looked down at the parcel in his hands, his name and thoughts wrapped neatly inside, soon to be in the hands of a man he deeply admired. With one final glance at the letter, Alan dropped it into the postbox, leaving his ideas to traverse the distance to London. The days following were filled with a sense of restless anticipation. He tried to focus on his work but his mind kept drifting back to the letter and what Keynes' response might be. Each morning brought with it a fresh wave of anticipation, a silent hope that there would be a reply waiting for him. After a week of eager anticipation, a response finally arrived. The sight of the envelope bearing the return address of Keynes sent a thrill through him. Turing hastily broke the seal his eyes scanning the contents of the letter. The response was encouraging, even inviting. A sense of relief washed over Alan Turing. It wasn't just an acceptance of his proposal, it was a genuine interest in the audacious idea he had presented. With a renewed sense of purpose, Turing set out to prepare for the meeting that could shape the future of his revolutionary idea. Dear Mr. Turing, I am intrigued by your letter and the idea you hints at. I must admit, the concept of intertwining economics and automated computing is not something I had given much thought to. As someone who has always found fascination in the unconventional, your suggestion piques my interest. Your work during the war 
particularly with the Enigma machine, precedes you. And your current work with computing machinery is a field I am curious about. The potential of automated computation seems to be an area that could reshape our world, and its applications in economics could indeed be profound. The idea of automated systems in economic theory, and particularly in money and resource allocation, has stirred my curiosity. The notion, while audacious, could prove revolutionary. I am in London for the foreseeable future. If you are able to make the journey, we can arrange a meeting here. Please let me know a time and date that suits you, and we shall converse further on this topic. Looking forward to our discussion, yours, John Maynard Keynes. The morning of his meeting with Keynes dawned bright and crisp, a hint of frost glistening on the cobblestones. Alan took an early train from Manchester, the anticipation and nervous excitement churning in his stomach. Arriving in London, the city felt different somehow, vibrant, with life yet imbued with an unspoken weight of history. It was here where ideas took flight, where theories were forged and destinies rewritten. Turing navigated the bustling streets of the capital, making his way to the Keynes residence. His heart thudded in his chest as he approached the residence, a sense of enormity settling over him. This wasn't just a meeting, it was the collusion of two worlds, two realms of knowledge that could potentially reshape society. Knocking on the door, Alan waited, feeling a sudden surge of apprehension as the door swung open and he was ushered into the home of John Maynard Keynes. Alan stepped over the threshold, not just of a house, but of a new horizon of possibility. As he was led into the drawing room, the sight of Keynes waiting for him brought a sense of surrealism. The man before him was an intellectual powerhouse, a force of nature who had challenged and reshaped economic thought. He took a deep breath, steadying himself. It was time to discuss the future of money, the uncharted territory of digital currency. It was time to make history. Keynes rose from his armchair, extending a hand to Alan as he entered the room. Mr. Turing, an absolute pleasure to meet you in person. I trust your journey was a comfortable one. Turing shook Keynes's hand, nodding. Yes, thank you. The train was on time, thankfully. It's a stark contrast to the recent coal shortages. Ah, indeed, Keynes replied, a knowing look in his eyes. Just one of the many problems that our nation must grapple with post-war. We have the will, but the means are often muddled. This is why new ideas and perspectives are always a breath of fresh air. A server entered the room with a tray, pouring them each a cup of tea. Please have a seat. Keynes gestured towards the armchair opposite. Can I offer you some biscuits? They're quite delightful with the tea. Thank you, Alan replied, accepting the offer with a smile. And might I add, your home is quite remarkable. Keynes smiled, a hint of pride in his eyes. 
Thank you, Mr. Turing. It's been in my family for generations. So, let's talk. I'm curious to hear more about your ideas. But before we delve into that, how is your work progressing at the University of Manchester? Well, the university has been an excellent place to concentrate on my work, Turing began, glancing around the room as he spoke. We have been focusing on the Manchester Mark I, an improvement on the small-scale experimental machine. It's progressing well. That sounds intriguing, Kane said, an appreciative nod in his direction. Your work in computing is revolutionary, I must say. Thank you, Mr. Keynes. We believe it has an immense potential, Alan said, a modest note in his voice. And what about you? I've heard you're off to America soon. Yes, indeed, Keynes affirmed, taking a sip of his tea. I have been called upon to discuss the post-war economic landscape. It's a delicate situation and needs careful manoeuvring. That sounds like a formidable task. Your theories must be instrumental in shaping discussions, Turing noted. They do play a part, Keynes said, a hint of humility in his voice. Though I must admit, I'm as intrigued by the potential of new ideas. That's why your letter piqued my interest. The intersection of computing and economics is an unexplored territory, and I believe it holds a wealth of possibilities. Turing felt a spark of excitement at Keynes's words. He was eager to delve into their discussion, to explore the revolutionary idea he had stumbled upon. But he knew they were still on the edges of their conversation, skirting around the heart of the matter. Turing decided to enjoy the small talk a little longer, feeling the comfort of Keynes's amicable presence. After all, they were just at the beginning of their journey into the unknown. Mr. Keynes, Turing began, placing his teacup back on its saucer. I have been reading a fascinating work by Ludwig von Mises, The Theory of Money and Credit. His theories have sparked a curiosity in me about the role of money in our economy. However, I must admit that I am no economist. I was hoping you could shed some light on your own theories. Keynes smiled, his eyes reflecting the keen intellect behind them. I'd be delighted, Mr. Turing. You see, my focus has been primarily on employment, investment and interest rates. Why is that? Turing asked, his gaze unwavering. Why the emphasis on employment over money? Good question, Keynes said, leaning back in his chair. While money is a critical tool in the economy, it's only a medium of exchange, a unit of measurement, is not an end in itself. The true aim of an economy, as I see it, is to provide employment and produce goods and services that people need. When we focus too much on the money supply, we lose sight of this fact. But couldn't an optimal distribution of money theoretically lead to an optimal employment and distribution of resources, Turing ventured. Keynes stroked his chin, a thoughtful look on his face. That's an interesting perspective, Mr. Turing. It sounds like we have quite a discussion ahead of us. Well, Turing began, leaning forward in his seat, if we consider money supply as a medium of exchange, 
Isn't it also true that the manipulation of this medium could have wide-reaching consequences? Consequences that could potentially be more damaging than variations in employment, investment and interest rates. Keynes raised an eyebrow, intrigued. Manipulation? You're referring to inflation, I presume. Yes, inflation, but not just that, Turing clarified. Any kind of manipulation or intervention that alters the value of money, be it inflation, deflation or arbitrary monetary policy, isn't it possible that these could lead to misallocations of resources, price distortions and economic instability? Keynes considered this, his gaze intense. You raise an interesting point, Mr. Turing. Fluctuations in the value of money can indeed have destabilizing effects. However, in times of economic depression, intervention might be necessary to stimulate demand and get the economy back on track. But, Turing continued, pushing his argument further, if the value of money is constantly in flux, does not undermine its very purpose as a stable unit of measurement, as you said earlier. Keynes sat back, folding his arms. That's true, but unfortunately, a completely stable currency is an idealistic concept. In practice, the value of money can and does change due to various factors, and some degree of intervention may be necessary to manage that. It's a delicate balancing act. Yes, I see, Chorin replied, his mind already racing with possibilities. What if we could create a system where this balancing act was done not through intervention, but through computation? A system that could minimise these fluctuations and provide a more stable and fair distribution of resources. Keynes regarded Turing with a fascinated expression. That's an extraordinary idea, Mr. Turing. It certainly sounds revolutionary, but would it even be feasible? The complexity of such a system seems formidable. Alan's face broke into a grin. That's what makes it so exciting, Mr. Keynes, and I believe it's entirely within our reach. Ah, but here's where we diverge, Mr. Turing, Keynes said, tapping his fingers against the arm of his chair. While your proposition is intellectually stimulating, I worry about its implications for social stability. Turing tilted his head slightly, inviting Keynes to elaborate. You see, Keynes began, in my perspective, money must be viewed in the context of a holistic national economy, where it serves not only as a medium of exchange, but also as a tool for policy implementation. Your concept, if I understand correctly, seems to promote a kind of economic anarchy, a self-regulating system with little room for intervention. While it could theoretically eliminate the distortions you mentioned, it could also lead to unforeseen volatility and unpredictability. He listened intently, taking in Keynes's counterpoint. He knew that any innovation especially one as significant as his own idea, would come with its share of challenges. The key was in anticipating these obstacles and finding a way to address them. Keynes leaned forward, the intensity in his eyes 
much in the seriousness of his tone. Furthermore, during the issuance of money traditionally comes from authority. Its value is intrinsically tied to trust in that authority. If we remove this trust or the authority, the very concept of money might collapse. Your system could possibly be too dangerous. Alan held his gaze, his mind reeling with the implications of Keynes's words. But, he interjected, isn't it exactly this trust, or rather the abuse of it, that could lead to economic turmoil? In theory, a computational system would remove this element of human fallibility. Keynes sighed, running a hand through his hair. Perhaps, Turing, but we're venturing into uncharted territory here. The repercussions could be far-reaching, beyond anything we can anticipate. The economy isn't just numbers and logic, it's people, and people are unpredictable. Perhaps, then, Alan suggested, leaning forward with a spark in his eyes, we could create a system that inherently encourages good behaviour and disincentivizes the abuse of trust. Have you considered game theory, Mr Keynes? In such a model, we could construct a set of rules where the best strategy for any individual is to act in the interest of the whole. Keynes looked at Turing intrigued. That's a fascinating idea, but how would you implement it in the context of money? Turing paused, formulating his thoughts. In a system of programmable money, the issuance and distribution of money could be tied to the satisfaction of certain conditions that promotes economic stability and fairness. Essentially, the system would reward behaviour that benefits the economy and penalises behaviour that disrupts it. Keynes furrowed his brow, clearly deep in thought. I must say, Turing, your ideas are revolutionary. They have the potential to upend everything we know about economics. However, they are potentially perilous. A transition from the traditional monetary system to the one you are suggesting would be fraught with difficulties. Of course, Turing replied, but isn't that the case with every revolutionary idea? I understand your concerns and I share them, but I also believe this idea is worth exploring. And who better to explore it with than you, Mr Keynes? Keynes gave a small trickle, seeming to appreciate Alan's persistence. Well, you've certainly given me a lot to think about, Turing. I look forward to our future discussions. Alan resolute in his conviction wrapped up his enlightening conversation with Keynes. Despite the challenges and counter-arguments, he felt undeterred, even more resolute in his mission. Leaving Keynes with a firm handshake, he ventured back to Manchester, his mind ablaze with thoughts, theories, and computations. The next step was clear to answer the question of how and why his theory of programmable money might work. He would need to consult with another intellectual giant, Ludwig von Mises. Mises, a formidable figure in the realm of economics, was renowned for his work in the field of praxology, the study of human action and decision-making. 
Turing believed that Mises' understanding of subjective value theory and his work on the economic calculation problem could shed light on the practical feasibility of his digital currency concept. Arriving back in Manchester, Allen immediately penned a letter to Mises explaining his theoretical framework and seeking an audience. It was a long shot. Mises was a significant figure and his time was precious. But he hoped that the novelty and potential impact of his concept would pique Mises' interest. Alan sent off his letter. He couldn't help but feel a sense of anticipation. He was venturing into uncharted territory, bridging the gap between economics and computer science. It was an audacious endeavour, but if he succeeded, the impact would be profound. Dear Professor Mises, I hope this letter finds you well. My name is Alan Turing, a mathematician and computational theorist based at the University of Manchester. I am writing to you because I find myself at the intersection of economics and computing. A place that I believe is ripe with potential but is largely unexplored. Over the past few months, I have been deeply engrossed in the study of economic systems, specifically the function of money as a medium of exchange and store of value. My interest is not purely academic. I see a problem with the current system of resource allocation and, being a computer scientist, my instinct is to find a programmable solution. To that end, I am envisioning a programmable monetary system, a digital currency if you will. This system would utilise cryptographic techniques to ensure security and transparency. It would be decentralised, removing the need for a central authority, and would reward behaviour that benefits the economy, thereby providing a self-regulating mechanism for maintaining economic stability. I am keenly aware that the theories and principles that govern economics are complex, and that a project of this magnitude is fraught with challenges. But I am also convinced that if done right, such a system could potentially revolutionise the way we conduct transactions and manage resources. Your seminal work in the field of praxology, your understanding of subjective value theory, and your insights into the economic calculation problem are of immense interest to me. I believe that these theories could provide crucial insights that would help shape the foundation of this programmable monetary system. I am writing to request an audience with you to discuss my concept and understanding your theories in greater depth. I understand that your time is valuable, but I sincerely hope that you will consider my request. I look forward to your response. Best regards, Alan Shoring. Alan had been waiting with bated breath for a response from Mises. The anticipation made the usually mundane task of sorting through the morning mail feel like an adventure. Finally, a letter arrived, stamped and posted from Austria. Alan tore open the envelope and unfolded the letter. It was from Mises, and his eyes scanned the beautifully written script. His heart pounded with excitement. Dear Mr Turing, Mises had written, thank you for your thoughtful and intriguing letter. 
Your ideas around a programmable monetary system are indeed novel, and they pique my interest greatly. A fusion of economics and computing could open up a whole new world of possibilities. I must say that the grandeur and scope of your project is impressive. It is not often that I come across an idea that dares to challenge the conventional system of money and propose a radical alternative. As it happens, I will be visiting the United Kingdom in a few months. I will arrange for you to meet with my student, Friedrich Hayek, and myself when I visit. His work on the use of knowledge in society, particularly the dispersion of knowledge and information, will align closely with your thinking. Perhaps this meeting could serve as a catalyst for further exploration of your concept. Until then, I encourage you to delve deeper into the principles of economics. The nuances and interplays of various factors can often provide valuable insights and will undoubtedly strengthen the foundation of your project. Yours sincerely, Ludwig von Mises. Alan felt a wave of elation as he read the response. The path was clear, the next step outlined. He would have to prepare to dive deeper into economic theory and be ready for the meeting with Hayek and Mises. As Turing sat down with Mises' letter, the dawn of a digital currency seemed just a little closer. In his modest quarters at the University of Manchester, Turing buried himself in work. He was consumed by his idea of a digital monetary system, his thoughts and calculations scattering across countless pages of notes and diagrams. Days turned into weeks, and weeks turned into months, the winter chill giving way to the gentle bloom of spring. Yet his world remained within the confines of his study, insulated from the outside. One chilly morning, Alan sat hunched over his desk, engrossed in a complex algorithm when a knock came at his door. It was one of his colleagues with a newspaper in his hand. His face wore a glum expression. Have you heard the news, Alan? he asked, his voice barely above a whisper. No. What news? Turing looked up, puzzled. It's Keynes. He's passed away, his colleague said, handing over the paper. The headline bled the grim news. John Maynard Keynes dies at 62. Turing felt a wave of shock wash over him. Despite their differing views on economics, he held an immense respect for Keynes. They had shared a lively intellectual discourse, one that Alan had cherished. The news of Keynes' death felt like the loss of a fellow explorer, one who had dared to question and challenge the status quo. Over the next few days, Alan found himself reflecting on their conversations. He remembered Keynes' words, his sharp mind, his insistence on the authority-backed money. In a strange way, the death of Keynes intensified Alan's resolve to continue his own work. He saw it as a way to honour the man who, in his own way, had spurred him on this path. The world had lost a brilliant economist, but the wheels of progress couldn't be halted. Turing knew he had a daunting task ahead, a meeting with Hayek and a monumental project to bring to life. With renewed determination, he dived back into his work. The loss of Keynes had marked an end of an era, but perhaps it could also mark the beginning of a new one. As the day of the meeting approached, 
Alan found himself in a whirlwind of preparation. He pored on his research, carefully examining every angle of his proposition. He rehearsed his arguments, knowing that he would be presenting his ideas to two of the most formidable minds in economics. He spent long hours at the university library, immersing himself in the work of von Mises and Hayek. He dissected their theories on economic freedom, the business cycle, and most importantly, their views on monetary policy. The loss of Keynes had left a void in the world of economics. His theories had shaped much of the 20th century economic landscape, but his death marked the end of an era. But with von Mises and Hayek, Turing saw the potential for a new era to be ushered in, one where his idea of a digital currency could come to fruition. On the day of the meeting, he felt a knot of anticipation and anxiety in his stomach. He arrived at the designated location, a quaint tea house in the heart of London. As he stepped inside, he spotted von Mises and Hayek seated at a corner table. Taking a deep breath, Alan approached them, ready to present his revolutionary concept. This was the moment he had been preparing for, the next crucial step in his journey to create a digital currency. Alan approached the table with a firm pace, the low hum of conversation filling the air. Von Mises, a robust man with a shock of white hair and piercing eyes, extended his hand. Hayek, somewhat more reserved with thin spectacles, and a thoughtful countenance, nodded in polite acknowledgement. Turing returned their greetings, and the men settled into the rhythm of polite conversation, discussing their journeys in the weather. After the pleasantries, Alan took a deep breath and started on the topic at hand. Gentlemen, my idea in economic theory has led me to a rather unconventional idea. Turing began his eyes shining with anticipation. I have been considering the concept of currency, how it's created, distributed, and controlled. Von Mises leaned forward, his eyebrows raised slightly. Interesting. Proceed. I've started to see parallels between the problems of computation and those of the economy. We solve complex mathematical problems by breaking them down into manageable parts and computers execute these tasks with immense precision and speed. Could we not apply the same principle to economic problems? Hayek adjusted his glasses. Are you suggesting we substitute human judgment with machines in economic matters? Not substitute, but assist, Turing clarified. Take money, for example. Its production and distribution is centrally controlled this leads to inefficiencies and inequalities. But what if we create a form of currency that isn't bound by these limitations? A currency that's decentralised and could be quote-unquote mined by solving complex computations. Von Mises and Hayek shared a glance, clearly intrigued. Alan could see that they were trying to wrap their heads around the idea, just as he had when he first contemplated it. The potential implications are enormous, von Mises finally said, but it's an ambitious, almost radical concept. Can it be practical? Turing took a sip from his tea. I believe it can be. With advancements in computing, it's not inconceivable. 
I'm not suggesting this, as a replacement for traditional currency, not immediately at least. But imagine an alternative form of currency, resistant to manipulation and with no need for intermediaries. Alan noticed a spark of interest in Hayek's eyes. Hayek had always been an advocate for competition in currency. This computer money, as you put it, Hayek began, you suggest, it could be earned by solving computations. Could these computations serve a purpose beyond merely minting the currency? Alan Turing slowly nodded. Absolutely, they could help drive research, solve complex mathematical problems, contribute to scientific achievement. The possibilities are endless. The thoughtful silence persisted before von Mises leaned forward. His hand clasped tightly around his cup. Your theory, Mr. Turing, is as captivating as it is radical. But it raises a number of questions. You propose a digital currency immune to manipulation. But who decides the rate of mining, the value of each unit? Turing acknowledged. These are valid questions. Initially, the parameters could be set within the system, coded within the algorithms. The rate of mining could decrease over time, making each new unit harder to mine, reflecting scarcity akin to a natural resource. And how would you prevent fraud? The possibility of duplicating this digital currency, Hayek chimed in, his finger tapping thoughtfully on the ledger. I envision a public ledger, Turing responded. A record of all transactions, transparent for everyone to see. To validate a new transaction, it would have to be consistent with this history. We could incentivize validation as part of the mining process. This system of verification would be virtually tamper-proof. Hayek, who was an advocate of the dispersal of knowledge and the importance of individual decision-making, looked visibly interested. So each participant contributes to the system's security. Turing nodded. Exactly. They become part of an intricate, self-regulating network. Von Mises ran a hand over his chin. You propose an extraordinary system, Turing, but this radical departure from conventional economics is bound to face opposition, not just intellectually, but politically as well. I understand that, Turing acknowledged. The concept is avant-garde, and it may not be ready for its time. But shouldn't we, as men of science, strive for progress? Von Mises refilled his cup with tea, contemplating Alan Turing's proposal further. Another concern, he started, involves trust. The world operates on currencies backed by governments. The value of a pound, a dollar, it lies in the trust we have in the institutions that issue them. How do you propose to build trust in your digital currency? Turing considered the point thoughtfully. The trust in my proposal lies in the system itself, in its transparent and decentralised nature. Its credibility would stem from its incorruptibility, its resistance to manipulation, and its function as a true store of value. Hayek Having observed the exchange, added his own doubts. And then there's the question of adoption. Even if trust can be built, how do you get the people, the markets, to start using 
this digital currency. They would need to access the appropriate technology, and even then, there would be a considerable learning curve. Adoption on a global scale seems a daunting challenge. Turing nodded, acknowledging the validity of Hayek's argument. Yes, it's indeed a considerable obstacle. The progression of technology, computers and the internet, they're all crucial for this idea to come to life. And they're all still in the nascent stages. As I said, might be too ahead of its time, but when the time is right, I believe the benefits of a decentralised currency would be attractive enough for people to learn, adapt and adopt. The conversation continued, with Alan defending his ideas against the other economists' well-founded doubts. His proposal was audacious, risky yet enthralling. It carried the potential to shift the foundations of economics, to redefine value and revolutionise the future. But for now, it was a concept born in an era that might not be ready for its implications. Turing cleared his throat, looking from von Mises to Hayek, his blue eyes bright with a conviction that seemed to illuminate the room. The utopian ideal of computing, he began, is not just about creating machines that crunch numbers. It's about creating systems that help us navigate the complexities of the world more efficiently, more equitably. He leaned back, hands folded in his lap, his gaze somewhere far off. We've created complex systems of trade, economics and government, all help to allocate resources, to help us navigate the challenges of scarcity and decision-making. But these systems are prone to corruption, inefficiency, and they often concentrate power in the hands of a few. He returned his gaze to his esteemed colleagues. Computing offers us a chance to redesign these systems from the ground up. A chance to embed fairness and efficiency into the very code that runs our world. If we can create a system that does for economics what the automatic calculator does for arithmetic, make it faster, more accurate, less prone to human error and manipulation, we could revolutionise the world. He paused, allowing his words to sink in before continuing. That's what this proposal is about. It's not just digital money. It's a blueprint for a digital economy, a digital society. An economy where the rules are enforced by code, not men. A society where trust is built into the system, not demanded by authorities. A world where the very concept of central power is obsolete. Gentlemen, for the sake of argument, Let's imagine the world in which this concept has become a reality. A world where digital currency has replaced traditional money. What do you foresee? Hayek shifted in his seat, his features showing a mix of intrigue and caution. Well, he started, in an ideal scenario, it would lead to a more egalitarian society, wouldn't it? Less intermediaries, more peer-to-peer -peer transactions, and less power in the hands of a centralised authority. The system would be more transparent and, in theory, more trustworthy. The result would be a freer market, and perhaps a freer society. But there's a downside, von Mises chipped in. In the absence of a central authority, what happens if the system fails or is manipulated? Who is responsible? 
How would we cope with economic crises, inflation or deflation? Could we end up with a highly volatile economy? And what if privacy, a digital public ledger, might create a surveillance nightmare? Freedom in this case could come at the cost of security and stability. Also, Hayek added, while the system may provide equal access, it doesn't guarantee equal outcomes. There's the risk that digital wealth might concentrate in the hands of the few who are technologically adept. It's a double-edged sword, Alan. Taking a deep breath, Turing leaned forward, his eyes glinting with a potential mix of anticipation and determination. This is where I believe game theory could be integral. Consider for a moment, gentlemen, the role of miners in this system. They would be incentivized to participate in the network, validating transactions and maintaining the system's integrity. The incentive, a reward in the form of new units of currency plus the transaction fees. Hayek, ever the pragmatist, frowned. The miners you speak of, they would essentially replace the banks as validators of transactions. In a way, yes, Turing nodded. The beauty of it is that it would be in their best interest to act honestly. If they attempt to manipulate the system or validate fraudulent transactions, they'd risk losing their rewards. Von Mises, usually the most sceptical of the pair, seemed intrigued. So you're suggesting a competitive system where participants' self-interests align with the overall health of the network? Ingenious. Indeed, Charon replied, a game-theoretical equilibrium. It's a radical departure from our current system, but one that has the potential to revolutionise how we think about and handle money. There was a moment of silence as the implications of Turing's ideas settled on the trio. A silent consensus was reached. The magnitude of Turing's vision, his audacity and potential consequences, were both thrilling and terrifying. Von Mises struck his chin thoughtfully, his gaze fixed in the distance as if he could see this brave new world unfolding before his eyes. The beauty of your proposal, Alan, is that it takes money out of the realm of state control and manipulation, making it truly a product of the market. A perfect currency, one might say, would be neutral, resistant to manipulation, and have a predictable and limited supply. This programmable money of yours could indeed tip all those boxes. Hayek added, indeed, Ludwig. And with game theory ensuring that the miners play by the rules, the supply of money would be controlled not by central banks, but by the protocol itself. The supply could be predetermined and known to all participants. But, Turing interjected, the creation of new money would be tied to the validation of transactions, right? So wouldn't that introduce some variability? Hayek trickled softly. Yes, it would be variability within predictable bounds much like the unpredictability of gold mining under the gold standard. Yet we still had a good understanding of the likely rate of new gold entering the market. Von Mises nodded. The unpredictability within a certain range could actually be a virtue, Alan. It would introduce a randomness that would make manipulation even more difficult. A beautifully chaotic order, if you will. But we have to remember, Hayek interjected, it's not just about the technicalities 
of this new system. To really function, this kind of money would require a societal shift in understanding and trust. And that, my dear Alan, might be the most daunting challenge of all. Quite, Turing agreed, his gaze thoughtful. And that is where my expertise in computer science comes into play. The very nature of this system would be to ensure its security and trustworthiness. Every transaction would be validated and recorded on a publicly accessible ledger. It would be transparent and incorruptible. And yet, mused von Mises, there lies the irony. For a system that, in its essence, relies on trustlessness, it requires an immense leap of faith from the public to accept it, to trust the absence of trust, so to speak. But I believe, Alan said, that computing power grows and technology becomes an ever more pervasive part of our daily lives. Such a leap may not be as daunting as it appears today. Perhaps, Hayek acquiesced, and should that day come, your programmable money might just be the answer to the economic disparities and issues of trust we grapple with today. But Alan, such a thing cannot be rushed. It must evolve naturally as society and technology mature. Alan nodded, feeling a strange mix of exhilaration and frustration. His mind was alive with possibilities, his ideas validated by two of the greatest economists of the time. But he also knew, deep down, that he was ahead of his time. His vision would not be realised in his lifetime. But that doesn't mean I can't lay the groundwork, does it? Alan asked, more to himself than to the men sitting across from him. No, it doesn't, Hayek agreed, a glint of admiration in his eyes. And who knows, Mr. Joring, history is replete with the tales of ideas ahead of their time, eventually shaping the future. Perhaps your programmable money will be one such tale. Let's drink to that, von Mises said, raising his glass, to the future of money. To the future of money, Turing echoed, his voice filled with resolve, the seed of his idea having been planted. Now it was time to nurture it, to let it grow, and to see where it would lead. It occurs to me, Alan, that your idea isn't simply about money. It's a potential solution to one of humanity's most enduring dilemmas. How do we distribute resources fairly in a complex society? Indeed, one might just chimed in. It's a question that's been asked for centuries. Utopian thinkers and philosophers have dreamed of an equitable society, one where no one is left wanting. The rise of computing power could indeed bring us closer to such an ideal. The allocation of resources in society has long been the domain of central planners, Alan agreed. But the potential of technology to democratise this process is immense. A programmable decentralised currency could lead to a society where resources are collected not by the decisions of a select few, but by the decisions of everyone. If you were to pursue this, you would face resistance from those who prefer the status quo, those who benefit from the existing systems of power. Alan nodded, acknowledging the truth of Hayek's words. I am well aware of the challenges that lay ahead. But if I were to let fear of resistance dissuade me from this path, then I would not be worthy of the task. A noble sentiment, one might see agreed. Just remember, Alan, 
That idea can be both powerful and dangerous. The potential for great good also carries the risk of great harm. One must tread carefully when venturing into such uncharted territory. They continued discussing late into the night, the room filled with the hum of intellectual debate. As Alan Turing left, he carried with him the word and wisdom of two of the world's greatest economists, knowing that he stood on the precipice of a monumental journey. And yet, he felt a strange sense of calm. Despite the immensity of the task ahead, he was ready to face it head on, for the future of money, for the future of society, he would take that leap of faith. Once back in Manchester, Alan threw himself into his work with an all-consuming passion. It was as if the veil had been lifted from his eyes, and he saw a vision of what could be, of a utopian society where wealth was distributed not by the whims of a few, but by the algorithms of a computer. His desk became a chaotic tableau of mathematical equations and computer code, strewn about in haphazard fashion as he worked late into the night. The hum of the electric light above his desk was the only sound that punctuated the stillness as Alan poured over his ideas, attempting to breathe life into his nascent vision. He understood the magnitude of the task ahead. The technology needed to bring his vision to fruition was decades away, but this did not deter him. He would lay the foundation for future generations, his gift to humanity. His thoughts wandered back to the war, to the Enigma machine, and the grim satisfaction of knowing his work had played a vital role in the Allied victory. And yet, there was also guilt, a pang of conscience at the lives lost, lives he might have saved had his work been completed sooner. This new project offered him a chance at redemption. He would not fail. He wrestled with concepts of cryptography and game theory, devising a system where transactions could be verified without the need for a central authority. The possibility of this idea excited him, offering a hint of what the future could look like, where every individual, regardless of their circumstances, could participate in a truly democratic economy. As Alan immersed himself in this brave new world of possibilities, he was acutely aware of the risks. There was an enormous challenge in convincing others of the value of this idea, and he knew he was far ahead of his time, but he was not deterred. In the face of resistance and scepticism, he would persevere. His vision for a better world was a beacon that guided him forward. Despite the enormity of the task, he knew that he was on a path from which there was no turning back. Alan began by assessing the magnitude of the problem at hand. Sitting down at his wooden desk, he pulled out a blank sheet of paper, smoothed it out, and began to write. Decentralisation. The system must be completely decentralised, with no central authority or institution in control. The transaction should be verified by a peer-to-peer -peer network. This would eliminate the need for trust and reduce the chances of corruption or manipulation. Double spending. To prevent the same digital coin from being spent more than once, there must be a mechanism in place to validate each transaction and ensure its uniqueness. Privacy and security. Personal information must remain private 
while the transaction details must be transparent. Moreover, the system must be secured against any potential attacks. Thus, robust cryptographic techniques should be employed. Fair distribution. The process of new coin generation, or mining, should be designed in a way that is fair and accessible to anyone wishing to participate, not just those with significant resources. Scalability. The system should be designed to handle a large number of transactions as more and more people participate in the network. It should be efficient and fast, regardless of its size. Regulation and compliance. The system would need to be decentralised. It would need to operate within the confines of various legal jurisdictions. Navigating this would be a complex task. Adoption. A considerable challenge would be to encourage mass adoption. The system would have to be user-friendly and have practical benefits over traditional currency. Alan studied his list, pondering each problem in turn. They were formidable challenges, no doubt, but not insurmountable. The road ahead was long, but he felt a deep sense of purpose that energised him. He was ready to begin. In the ensuing months, and even years, Alan's life became a solitary existence of work, calculation and contemplation. He spent countless hours at his desk, papers strewn in seeming chaos, filled with equations, diagrams, notes and theories. His first focus was to tackle the issue of decentralisation and the prevention of double spending. Alan pored over his extensive library of mathematical and cryptographic books, constantly revisiting the ideas and feedback from his conversation with von Mises and Hayek. Alan also began drafting a simple programming language, one that would be versatile enough to handle the intricate checks and balances necessary for the successful operation of a digital currency. It was in these late night programming sessions that Alan began to feel the weight of his undertaking. Yet, it was the issue of privacy and security that troubled him the most. The encryption had to be unbreakable, yet the transaction history had to be transparent and verifiable, a paradox in the making. Nevertheless, Alan believed that the encryption technologies developed during the war could serve as a starting point. As for fair distribution and scalability, Alan contemplated the potential for an algorithmic solution, one which would ensure a fair distribution of mining rewards and would maintain the network's stability and efficiency even as the network scaled. When it came to regulation and compliance, Alan was somewhat lost. His mind was steeped in mathematics and logic, not law and governance. It was a puzzle he left for later. Finally, adoption. This was more a sociological question than a technical one. How could he convince people to trust this abstract, complex system? The answer, he concluded, was to demonstrate its superior functionality and potential for financial liberation. Throughout this process, Alan faced many sleepless nights, riddled with doubt and frustration. But every time he hit a wall, he thought of the world outside, still reeling from the effects of war and struggling to rebuild. He imagined a world where his digital currency had removed economic barriers 
leveled the playing field and gave people control over their own finances. This vision reignited his spirit and pushed him forward, propelling him deeper into the world of his revolutionary monetary system. Eventually, after months of tireless work, the pieces began to fall into place. The theoretical framework for his electronic cash system was nearing completion. Allen knew, however, that the real work was just beginning. For his system to work, the technology needed to catch up to his revolutionary ideas, and that could take years, if not decades. Allen began to pore over the blueprint of early computing machines and the estimates of their future capacities. These machines were still primitive, and it was difficult for him to envisage a time when they might possess the computational power necessary to carry out the complex tasks required by his digital currency system. He started to make calculations, working out the exact level of computational power needed for each part of the system. The creation of blocks, the verification of transactions, the resolution of the double spending problem. Each of these required a significant amount of computation. Alan recognised that for the system to work, there would need to be a multitude of these computational machines operating simultaneously and collaborating in real time. The world, as it was, had yet to witness such an interconnected network. Pondering this, Alan turned his attention to communication. The exchange of data between these computational machines needed to be secure and instantaneous. It was a challenging task. Alan knew that the technology of his day was not up to this task, yet he believed in the inevitability of technological progress. He envisaged a world where computational machines across the globe would connect, forming a robust and distributed network. In this envisaged world, data would zip across this network, routed from one machine to the next. These machines, dispersed across the globe, would be solving mathematical problems, verifying transactions and communicating with each other in real time. Alan found the thought exhilarating. It was an elegant solution to the problem of resource allocation that had first led him on this journey. For Alan, the issue of real-time interaction was one of the most crucial parts of the system. It would not suffice for these machines to operate in isolation. They needed to work together, verifying each other's calculations and maintaining the integrity of the digital currency system. Alan sat at his desk, strewn with papers and notes, sketches of circuits and mathematical formulas. The essence of the money system was clear in his mind. It was the technical implementation that required fleshing out. He had a vision a decentralised network of computers spread out across the world, each one a node in an elaborate autonomous system. He reached for his pen, dipped it into the ink pot and began to sketch his vision on a clean sheet of paper. At the top he wrote, a decentralised system for resource allocation. Below, he began to articulate the nuts and bolts of the system. First, the nodes, computers capable of storing and processing data. These nodes would have to communicate with each other, 
sharing and verifying information in a continuous loop. He began to diagram the flow of information, arrows branching out from one node to another. He called this the transmission protocol. It would involve intricate coding, a universal language that every node in the system could understand. Then came the concept of verification. Each node would also act as a watchdog, verifying the transactions processed by other nodes to maintain the integrity of the system. This concept of mutual surveillance would make the system not only decentralised, but also resilient and secure. The more Alan wrote, the more he realised that his system was more than just a new kind of money. He was outlining a blueprint for an entirely new way of distributing, verifying and storing information. This could be a network that would allow not just for the creation and distribution of his electronic money, but for a myriad of other applications as well. Alan paused and looked at his work, eyes tracing the lines of the blueprint he had sketched out. He saw computers across the world linked together, creating an information superhighway that could revolutionise not just economics, but every facet of society. A broad smile spread across his face. This was it. This was the breakthrough he had been hoping for. Immersed in his revolutionary work, Alan scarcely noticed the passing of time. Days blurred into nights and weeks into months. The idea had taken root and was now growing, branching out into a system more intricate and complex than anything he had worked on before. Yet, even amidst this engulfing process, Alan could not help but turn his gaze towards the world outside. The persistent poverty, the inefficiency, the disparities, he was more aware of them now than ever before. Each time he ventured out into the streets of Manchester, he saw the potential applications of his nascent network, saw the transformation it could bring, and gave him a sense of purpose, of urgency. Returning to his desk one day, Alan's eyes were drawn to the discarded newsprint that lay haphazardly on the floor. The headline read, Rationing to Continue. He picked it up, reading the article that spoke of the continued economic struggles of post-war Britain. A sense of disquiet filled him, but it was quickly replaced by a renewed determination. His work wasn't merely theoretical anymore. It was a potential solution a path towards a more equitable world. This thought galvanised him, pushed him to delve deeper, work harder. He poured his entire being into the project, fleshing out the protocols, the algorithms, the design, the pitfalls and the countermeasures. He envisaged a world connected through a network of nodes, where information flowed freely and efficiently, powering not just a novel monetary system, but facilitating a revolution in communication, data storage and processing. Every time he hit a snag, he would remember the world outside, its struggles and its hopes. He would remember the words of von Mises and Hayek, their optimism, their faith in the power of ideas, their belief in his vision. He thought of Keynes too. Despite their differences, he deeply respected the economist. He wished Keynes could have seen his work, could have debated it, critiqued it. He had no doubt 
that Keynes would have had valuable insights, even if they were contrary. As Alan continued his work, he couldn't shake off a feeling of unease. He felt like a tightrope walker on a thin wire, suspended high above a chasm. On one hand, he had a profound conviction in the potential of his work to change the world. On the other hand, he was acutely aware of its power and the dangers of it falling into the wrong hands. But he was committed now, committed to seeing his vision through, committed to leaving his mark on the world, not as the codebreaker of Bletchley Park, but as the architect of a new world order. As Alan was knee-deep in his notes and calculations, the dull rap on his door felt out of place in the usual quiet stillness of his workroom. Lowering his pen, he raised his gaze to the closed door and called out, Come in! The door creaked open, revealing two men in dark suits, their stern faces mismatched with the room's intellectual disarray. The severity of their demeanour immediately instilled an undercurrent of unease in Alan. Mr. Turing, one of them asked, the question hanging in the room. I am Alan Turing, yes, he responded, his gaze moving from one to the other. The other man, his face impassive, showed an ID card. We are from MI5. We're here to talk about your recent line of research. A cold apprehension swept over Alan. He had expected at some point the government might show interest in his work, given its groundbreaking implications. But the immediacy of it caught him off guard. He offered them seats and braced himself. In the ensuing hour, he found himself justifying his ideas, his theories, his intentions to the government agents. Their questions bore into the heart of this monetary system concept and the proposed globally interconnected network of computers, a global web of information. Their concerns were clear, the risk of misuse and potential threat to national security. Alan, in his frankness, shared his hopes, his fears and his belief in the potential of his work. He spoke of its ability to revolutionise society, to eliminate economic inefficiencies and to correct wealth disparities. And yet he admitted the risks, the chance for misuse and the urgency for safeguards. Despite their poker faces, the agents' relentless questioning was indicative of their apprehensions. As they eventually rose to leave, the one who had initially introduced them uttered a grave warning. Mr. Turing, under the Official Secrets Act, you must not disclose your research to anyone. We consider this a matter of national security, as it pertains to the stability of our nation's currency. With that, they left him alone with his theories and his doubts. The visit had only underscored the enormity of what he was trying to achieve and the potential dangers it held, the reality of the barriers he would have to face, the scrutiny and the implicit risks had never been clearer. Yet it was not a deterrent. Turing was cognizant of the magnitude of his vision. As he picked up his pen, his determination to bring this revolution to fruition was fiercer than ever. The dream of a better, efficient and equitable world through the power of computing was far too significant to be dismissed. Alan sat at his desk, 
the soft glow from the desk lamp pooling on his scattered papers. The blunt warning from the MI5 agents lingered in his mind, a chilling reminder of the potential danger his work posed. His gaze fell on his notes. The algorithms and theories sprawled across the page looked almost alien. A foreign language birthed from his own hand. He knew he had to continue his work to make his revolutionary theories accessible, and yet he was all too aware of the implications. The sensitivity of the topic mandated secrecy. A pseudonym, a mask behind which he could shield his identity while his creation emerged into the world. But what name should he choose? Names from his favourite books crossed his mind. Fictional characters, symbolic terms related to his work. But they all felt too closely connected, too easily traced back to him. His thoughts drifted to the numerous conversations he'd had over the years with colleagues, friends and strangers. One particular conversation stood out, an encounter with a Japanese mathematician at a conference in London. The mathematician had mentioned the beauty of Japanese names, each holding a deeper meaning and the respect they held for their linguistic symbolism. A Japanese name, he realised, would not only offer him a safe degree of detachment from his own identity, but also, with the right meaning, it could subtly echo the principles of his work. A quick perusal of a dictionary of Japanese names and their meanings led him to Satoshi Nakamoto. Satoshi symbolised clear thinking, quick-witted, wise. While Nakamoto represented central origin, or one who lives in the middle. It was just the pseudonym he needed, offering the right blend of anonymity and relevance. With this newfound resolve, Alan, now under the veil of Satoshi Nakamoto, dived back into his work. His ideas, his legacy, would now be brought to life, not as the brainchild of Alan Turing, but as a benevolent gift from an enigmatic Satoshi Nakamoto, for a world waiting to be transformed. With his new pseudonym selected, Alan threw himself into his work with renewed vigour. He meticulously documented his theories on the wide-reaching network he had begun to envisage, and his concept for the revolutionary electronic money system. Day turned into night, then into day again as he became lost in his work. Alan felt that he was on the cusp of a breakthrough, a game-changing contribution to society. He scribbled down his ideas and discoveries in a frenzy, barely noticing the passage of time. The room was filled with the soft rustle of paper and the quiet tapping of his pencil. Every now and then, Alan found himself pausing to look at the world outside his window. He saw people going about their daily lives, oblivious to the fact he was about to set into motion a series of events that could profoundly alter the course of human history. He knew he couldn't share his work with anyone. It was an isolating thought. Yet Alan felt a sense of liberation in the solitude. He was no longer Alan Turing, the genius mathematician. He was Satoshi Nakamoto, the nameless, faceless creator of something 
that had the potential to reshape society in a way few could fathom. As he filled the pages with his theories and diagrams, he also started to pen what would become a pivotal document in the years to come. A white paper that would outline the revolutionary new monetary system he had envisaged. Each stroke of his pen seemed to echo through the silence of his room, the ink laying out a path towards a future that had only existed in his mind until now. The isolation was all-consuming, yet paradoxically he'd never felt more connected to the world beyond his window. In the twilight of December 1951, the monotonous hum of the machine dreams gave way to the enchanting rhythm of holiday cheer. The city of Manchester adorned itself in a vibrant patchwork of twinkling lights and festive gardens, casting a warm glow onto the icy sidewalks. Stepping into this vivid tableau, Alan Turing slipped from his world of theories and computations into a realm where humanity pulsated at its raw and joyful peak. As he sauntered down Oxford Road, the flurry of people, swaddled in scarves and laden with brightly wrapped gifts, spun an intricate dance around him. Alan moved through this landscape of light and sound as an island of solitude, not isolated but insular, the serene eye in the middle of a vibrant storm. And then, amidst the spectacle, he spotted Arnold Murray. The young man stood outside the regal cinema, his silhouette a lone figure against the theatre's marquee glow. Much like Turing, he seemed both part of the festive whirlwind and slightly removed from it. Drawn to the silent call of kinship, Turing ventured forward, bridging the gap between their solitary orbits. They conversed, trading thoughts on the shifting weather patterns, their shared cities, and the electric buzz of the festive season. Their dialogue, while anchored in the mundane, traced an invisible arc of mutual understanding. Arnold, with his useful energy and earnest responses, enticed Turing, offering a refreshing change from the sterile echo chamber of his theoretical world. In the ensuing weeks, the bond between them deepened. Arnold was no mathematician, no codebreaker. But to Alan Turing, he represented a rare sanctuary of humanity in a world otherwise consumed by intellectual pursuits. Their connection transcended words, breathing life into Alan's existence. However, the idyllic interlude was short-lived. In late January, Alan returned home to a ransacked house. Arnold, in an unexpected confession, revealed a disturbing connection to the burglar. Alan. Adhering to his innate honesty, reported the crime in their relationship. In a society that criminalised homosexuality, this admission set into motion a series of events that would overshadow Alan Turing's groundbreaking work. Turing and Arnold were charged with gross indecency, and thus Alan's audacious journey to reshape the world was abruptly halted. His extraordinary vision of the future was held in abeyance, eclipsed by the unyielding conventions of his time. The gears of Alan's world ground to a jarring halt. 
in the cold, austere chambers of his own home, he was confronted with a paradox that defied all of his theoretical prowess. His mind, once a cathedral of cogent thoughts and precise calculations, was now a stormy sea of confusion and dread. Every evening he had spent with Arnold, every stolen moment of laughter and shared understanding was now tainted with the harsh shade of criminality. It was as if a critical piece of code in his own personal algorithm had been flagged, turning his whole existence into an error message he couldn't debug. His life had always been a tightrope walk between the profound complexities of his work and the equally complex labyrinth of human emotions. But now the safety nets had been pulled away, his academic pursuits, his trailblazing journey into a new future were mired in secrecy. Locked away behind the impassive stone walls of national security. Simultaneously, his private life was laid bare, judged and condemned by the very society he sought to advance. The solitude that had once been a solace, a sanctuary for his expansive thoughts, now echoed with a cold, biting loneliness. His heart felt heavy, weighed down by the crushing inevitability of his situation. Yet in the quiet solitude of his home, amidst the grim reality of his predicament, Jorin found a spark of resilience. It flickered tentatively in the gloom, fueled by his unyielding will and fortified by his unwavering belief in his work. His journey had been halted, his work delayed, but the seeds of the future had already been sown. He had already laid the blueprint, the DNA of a new world. It was just a matter of time before it would rise and come into existence. Turing gift to humanity, his legacy. The pain of his personal plight was intense, yet it couldn't quench the fire of his intellectual pursuit. Turing was heartbroken, yes. He was gutted, mortified, torn apart by the cruel whip of societal prejudice. But he was not defeated. As the darkness gathered, Turing once more turned to his unwritten white paper to the undying vision of a world forever changed by his work. The date of his trial loomed over him like a great cloud, casting its shadow over the already sombre chambers of his home. The 31st of March, 1952, a date that seemed to dictate the rhythm of his heartbeats. It was a date that stirred within him a flurry of emotions, fear, uncertainty, and a defiance that blazed brighter than all else. The road ahead was uncertain, fraught with public humiliation and the pain of condemnation. But Alan Turing wasn't a man to cower in the face of adversity. Instead, he would do what he had always done. He would retreat into the universe he had created. The world of digits and algorithms, of logical processes and computational miracles. His digital currency project was more than just an intellectual pursuit now. It had become a sanctuary, a refuge from the storm brewing outside. This world, a world of his making, wasn't bound by the prejudice of society or the cold indifference of the law. Here, he was free, free to think, to create, to mould the future in his image. And so, Alan decided 
No matter what transpired on the day of his trial, no matter how harsh the judgment, he would dedicate himself wholly to his work. His creation was his legacy, his gift to a world that may or may not understand him. His resolve solidified within him, like a piece of steel being tempered in the fires of adversity. There was no turning back now. He had a date with destiny, and it was a date he would meet with his head held high and his spirit unbroken. Turing set his sights on the task at hand, his focus unwavering. For him the future was no longer a concept, a distant reality. It was an immediate goal, one that he was determined to bring to fruition. Every line of code, every theoretical equation was a step towards it. The trial could control his fate, but it could not control his future. That alone was his to shape. In the sanctuary of his study, amidst the gentle hum of his machine and the rustling of papers, Alan began the process of collating his work. The problem of decentralisation was in part addressed. He had envisaged a system where computers across the globe would be able to interact in real time, acting as nodes in a global network. It was a tantalising hint at what might eventually become the fabric of the modern digital world. The challenge remained, however, in how to ensure this complex web of machines could operate securely and maintain data integrity. Next, the issue of the nature of transactions was also a partially solved problem. Transactions needed to be verified and recorded, avoiding the double spending problem. The seed of an idea had already germinated in his mind. A chain of blocks, each one containing a list of transactions, secured cryptographically. The finer details were still elusive, but the core concept was robust enough to be pursued further. The theoretical underpinning of his proposed electronic money system, influenced by the theories of von Mises and Hayek, was another aspect he had spent considerable time on. He had come up with a scheme where the system would dynamically adjust to provide incentives and maintain balance, informed by the principles of game theory. Yet, how this would be encoded and made robust against any possible gaming of the system was a significant hurdle left to overcome. Finally, and perhaps most critically, was the ensuring that this entire system was resistant to the manipulation or control by any single entity. The very essence of his concept rested on this tenant, that the money supply should be as democratic and decentralised as possible, how to prevent anyone or any group from gaining undue influence over the system was a challenge he was still grappling with. Turing sighed as he surveyed the scope of his work. It was a daunting task, but he was not disheartened. If anything, he felt invigorated. This was his magnum opus, his contribution to mankind. A world beyond the reach of prejudice and narrow-mindedness was the beginning to take shape in his documents. And he was the architect of this brave new world. On the morning of his trial, Alan found himself caught in a moment of quiet introspection. The quiet hum of his machines 
usually so comforting, seemed to echo hauntingly around his study, a stark reminder of the isolation he felt. Alan's world had shrunk to his research and his impending court case, two vast entities battling for dominance over his life. He dressed meticulously, taking a moment to straighten his tie in the reflection of the mirror. It was a strange tableau, Alan reflected. The man reflected back at him, seeming somehow distant, as though he was observing someone else's life play out. His research papers, blueprints for a world that was yet to exist, were gathered neatly. He glanced at them once more, their cryptic codes and diagrams testament to his relentless pursuit of knowledge and understanding. Alan's departure from his house was solemn. He glanced back once, staring at the building that had become both his sanctuary and prison, before stepping out onto the world stage for his most personal and critical performance. The courthouse loomed large as he arrived, a grey monolith under the unrelenting gaze of the morning sun. He gathered his strength and, clutching his papers close to his chest, he strode in, ready to face the judgement of a world he was on the verge of reshaping. His guilt was clear, not for the crime he was charged with, but for the life he had lived, a life of being unapologetically himself. But within him, a resolution solidified. Regardless of the trial's outcome, he would retreat into the one place where he was truly free, his work, his legacy. The world he envisaged would be one free from the prejudices and biases that had painted him a criminal. That was his purpose, and that was the hope he clung to as he walked into the courthouse. The gavel came down, with a finality that echoed around the courtroom, marking the end of the proceedings. Alan Turing, celebrated mathematician and war hero, was found guilty of gross indecency. A murmur ran through the room, but Alan was a figure of quiet dignity amidst the turbulence. His punishment was presented in the form of a macabre choice. Imprisonment or probation, conditioned on a series of hormone treatments, a procedure colloquially referred to as chemical castration. The implications were stark and disturbing, yet faced with a lifetime within four walls of a cell or the prospect of a physical transformation, Alan Turing chose the latter. He was to be administered with stilbostrol, now known as dithylisbestrol or DES, a synthetic estrogen. This powerful hormone would wreak havoc on his body, a slow and insidious process designed to dull his libido. Over the course of a year, the chemical onslaught would gradually feminize him, causing his body to develop breast tissue and rendering him impotent. The sentence was a cruel irony. The very intellect that had helped save Britain was being subjected to a brutal form of control. Alan Turing, a pioneer of binary code, was now on the receiving end of a life-changing algorithm administered by a societal system that saw his very existence as a problem. In his solitude, Turing made a poignant prediction. He said, No doubt I shall emerge from it a different man, but quite who 
I have not found out. A chilling testament to the uncertainty that lay ahead. He would be changed of that, there was no doubt. But the nature and extent of this transformation were as yet unknown. Alan Turing's conviction and his subsequent sentence marked a bitter turning point in his life. But even as he faced the consequences of his honesty, he remained steadfast, his spirit unbowed. Amid the chaos of his personal life, he would continue to explore the intellectual landscape of his futuristic monetary system, holding on to the hope that his ideas might one day change the world. Walking through the door of his home, after the trial, he found himself in a starkly different world, one that seemed to have shifted while he was away. He quietly navigated through the silent rooms until he reached his study. There, among the piled papers and blueprint-strewn desk, his ideas waited patiently, frozen in time. Gently, he picked up a draft of his work on the digital monetary system. As his eyes skimmed the lines of complex equations and theoretical concepts, he pondered how the hormone treatments might affect his work. Would they blunt his razor-sharp mind, or perhaps add a new dimension to his thoughts? Might they alter his perception of the problem, allowing him to approach it from a different perspective? Alan had never aligned with traditional concepts of masculinity, and yet there was an undeniable masculine energy to his work, a ferocity, a relentlessness, that had arguably contributed to the victory of a war. And what could be more manly than that? Would this intrinsic part of his identity fade away as the stillbow stroll began to take effect? The looming spectre of these changes filled him with a strange blend of dread and curiosity. His mind had always been his refuge, a haven of rationality and logic amidst the chaos of the world. The prospect of it altering in unforeseen ways was simultaneously terrifying and intriguing. With a sigh, Turing settled into his chair and began to work, the ticking clock a steady reminder of the passing time. As he delved into the complexities of his idea, he was determined to make as much progress as he could before the effects of the hormone treatment began. Each line of code he wrote, each problem he solved was a triumph, a testament to his resilience and a defiance of the judgment passed on him. In the solitude of his study, Turing began to adapt to his new reality, finding solace in the familiar rhythm of his work. Even as the world sought to control and change him, Turing held fast to the one thing that had always given him a sense of purpose and belonging, his groundbreaking ideas. As long as he could keep working, he would remain undeterred, pressing on in his quest to revolutionise the understanding of money and create his legacy for humanity. As Schoen immersed himself in the world of his creation, he found himself challenged by the naming of it. His work was unique and represented a new way of understanding currency, so the name had to be apt. He wanted a name that reflected its essence, its decentralisation, its security, 
and then leave it represented from the conventional monetary system. He went through a litany of possibilities, discarding each for not quite capturing what he had in mind. Crypto coin seemed too obvious and lacked the subtlety he desired. Digital dough, although light-hearted, failed to convey the seriousness of the concept. Web currency hinted at the network underlying the system, but said little about the groundbreaking technology it used. Then he thought of cybercash, which although forward-thinking, still didn't capture the unique interplay between cryptography and his envisioned system. Joring pondered over these choices more and more, reflecting on their strengths and weaknesses, always searching for the perfect fit. Finally, in the silence of the night it came to him, a term that brought together the digital and cryptographic elements of his system. It was simple yet profound, just like the technology it represented. It reflected the bits that formed the backbone of the system and the cryptography that ensured its security. The name Bitcoin resonated with Alan Turing. It signified a leap into a future where currency was not bound by physical forms or centralised authorities. It was the perfect name for his innovative and potentially world-changing creation. Alan devoted the following days and weeks to his white paper, meticulously outlining his concepts in the simplest terms possible, while also exploring the intricate technical and economic details that underpinned his theory. Alan devoted the following weeks to this monumental task. Every detail mattered. Every concept needed to be conveyed succinctly, yet completely. In his small flat, amidst the piles of notes and drafts, Alan sat at his desk and began to pen what could potentially change the world. He began with a simple, elegant introduction, a brief overview of the shortcomings of the current financial system and its reliance on trust in central institutions. He stressed the need for privacy and decentralisation, sketching a picture of a world where individuals had true control over their own wealth. Next, he moved on to the concept of Bitcoin. In simple terms, he described it as a form of digital cash, a peer-to-peer -peer system that eliminated the need for central authority. He explained the advantage of cryptographic proof over trust, how it safeguarded transactions and ensured the integrity of the system. Turing then delved into the intricacies of Bitcoin's underlying technology, the timestamp server. He outlined the structures, explaining the concept of blocks and how they held a series of transactions. He defined terms like hashing and proof of work, making sure to relate them back to the larger picture of Bitcoin's functionality. The process of mining was discussed next, how it worked in its dual purpose of transaction validation and new coin generation. He broke down its complexity, explaining in relatable terms how miners helped secure the network and were in turn rewarded. Turning to economic theory, he explained the idea of a finite supply of Bitcoin and how it would affect its value over time. 
He wrote about the potential for deflation and how scarcity could enhance Bitcoin's value. He mused over different economic scenarios and their potential effects on this new type of currency. Possible threats to the system are addressed next. Turing proposed potential attack vectors, including a 51% attack and how the system's design would defend against them. He dissected each scenario, reassuring readers of the system's reliance and security. He spent a significant portion of the white paper addressing incentives. He wrote about how the system was designed to encourage beneficial behaviours and discourage harmful ones, tying in principles of game theory to explain how self-interested parties would still work towards the common good. All the while, Turing made a concerted effort to ensure his writing was accessible, avoiding jargon wherever possible, and explaining complex concepts with straightforward examples. He knew that both computer scientists and economists alike would be examining this document, and it had to speak to both audiences effectively. As he wrote, he felt the enormity of the task. The world didn't yet know the name Bitcoin, but soon it would. And Alan Turing, under the pseudonym Satoshi Nakamoto, was the architect of its conception. Exhausted from months of relentless work, and now physically debilitated by the hormone treatment, Alan decided to take a much-needed break. His flat in Manchester seemed to shrink around him, and the walls closing in with the weight of his thoughts and calculations. The small space was cluttered with notebooks and crumpled sheets of paper, each line written with fervour, representing countless hours of contemplation and intellectual struggle. He rose from his chair, stretching his stiff limbs. Alan felt a weariness that ran deeper than mere physical fatigue. It was a sort of metaphysical tiredness that seeped into his soul, a fatigue that came from bearing a secret so vast and transformative that he sometimes felt the burden of it physically pressing upon him. He left his flat, stepping out into the cool, fresh air of Manchester. He wandered aimlessly, welcoming the simple act of moving, of being part of the world outside his four walls. The city seemed to breathe around him, alive with the bustling of people, the murmur of traffic, and the comforting ordinariness of daily life. He walked down the familiar streets, feeling the sun on his face, a comfort in his own right. The quiet murmur of the city around him was soothing, a stark contrast to the intensity of his thoughts and the enormity of his project. The ordinary sounds of life were a gentle reminder of the world that kept spinning outside his insular universe of cryptographic puzzles and economic theories. He found a quiet park and sat on a bench, watching as life unfolded around him. Children playing, dogs chasing after balls, couples holding hands, simple, everyday moments that felt grounding in their mundaneity. Here, under the dappled shade of a large oak tree, Alan took a moment to breathe, to simply exist. The world of Bitcoin, with all its promise and complexity, could wait. For now, he allowed himself to rest, to be a man sitting in a park, enjoying the sun on his face, and the ordinariness of life happening around him. Alan returned to his small flat, a new sense of calm washing over him. 
He took place in front of his desk, and before him lay the fruit of his intellect, his sweat, his very essence, the Bitcoin white paper, the crisp manuscript titled Bitcoin, a peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash system, bore no trace of the monumental effort and profound thought that had gone into its creation. He began reviewing it methodically, with the keen eyes of a critic and the mind of its creator. Introduction The opening of the white paper was designed to give a general overview of the, of the concept. Here, he had carefully defined the problem of traditional online transactions that relied heavily on trusted third parties like banks. He introduced the solution, a peer-to-peer -peer version of electronic cash, that would allow payments to be sent directly from one party to another without going through a financial institution. Transactions. In this section, Allen outlined the fundamental transaction system in the Bitcoin network. He explained how transactions would be made by broadcasting digitally signed messages to the network, thereby reducing the need for trust. Timestamp server. Here, Allen had dived into one of the critical components of the system, a timestamp server that would take a hash of a block of items to be timestamped and publicly announce it. The timestamp proved that the data existed at the time, clearly establishing a chronological order. Alan leaned back in his chair, looking at the half-reviewed manuscript before him. The room was filled with the soft hum of the world outside, the distant sound of traffic providing a steady backdrop to his thoughts. He had only begun to dissect the document, each section requiring its own dedicated analysis. Taking a deep breath, he prepared himself for the intensive review that lay ahead. Alan took a sip of his now lukewarm tea, placing the mug back on his desk with a soft clink. He focused again on the manuscript, his mind attuning to the rhythm of the task at hand. Proof of work. The next section was arguably one of the most significant parts of the white paper. Alan elucidated on the novel concept of proof of work explaining how it would be used to create new blocks in the Bitcoin network. He outlined its role in discouraging double spending and ensuring the decentralised, trustless nature of the system. Network. This section was where Allen had put forward his vision of a distributed network of nodes working together. He illustrated how the new transactions are broadcasted to all nodes and how each node collects new transactions into a block. Incentive. Alan moved on to discuss the incentives built into the Bitcoin system. He detailed how individuals or miners are incentivized to support the network and validate transactions, explaining the system of rewards in the form of newly created Bitcoins. It was a lengthy, complex document, but one that was crucial for the future of this groundbreaking technology. Turing knew that it was essential for the white paper to be clear, concise and comprehensive as possible. If he were to persuade others of the viability of his creation, he would have to make certain that every aspect of Bitcoin was thoroughly explained and justified. Taking a moment to rub his tired eyes, Alan Turing prepared himself for the final push. 
The last sections of the white paper awaited his scrutiny. Despite the fatigue that washed over him, he couldn't help but feel a sense of exhilaration. The finish line was in sight, reclaiming this space. Here, Alan detailed the ways in which Bitcoin would remain practical and efficient even as the number of transactions increased. He proposed a method to keep the blockchain size manageable, ensuring it could operate even on an individual's personal computer. Simplified Payment Verification This section described how users can verify transactions without the need to download the entire blockchain. This was a crucial part of his design, allowing for widespread usage with limited computing resources. Combining and splitting volume. Alan went on to explain how the system could handle transactions of varying amounts. His system would allow for payments to be split and combined effectively, further adding to the practicality of Bitcoin. Privacy. Privacy was a key concern, and Alan dedicated this section to explaining the steps taken to protect users' identities. While all transactions would be public, the system was designed such that individuals' identities remained unknown. He described this as pseudonymity. Calculations. This section was heavily technical, discussing the probability of a malicious entity successfully attacking the network. He detailed the intricate mathematics that underpinned the system, ensuring a high degree of security and stability. Conclusion. Finally, he reached the last section. Here, he reiterated the purpose of Bitcoin, summarising its major advantages and its potential to revolutionise the financial system. With the final line penned, Alan Turing sat back, feeling a sense of achievement and exhaustion in equal measure. The hormone treatment was taking its toll, but his resolve was unbroken. With this document, he had laid out a vision for his decentralised, secure and inclusive financial future. Now he needed the world to understand it, and more importantly, to believe in it. Alan knew he had reached an important milestone with the completion of the Bitcoin white paper, but he was aware that the journey was far from over. The hormone treatment was ravaging his body, but his mind remained clear, as determined and focused as ever. The next steps were clear in his mind. He needed to share his ideas with the world and he needed the right minds to understand and believe in it. Alan took a few days to rest and gather his strengths. He went for long walks around Manchester, soaking in the sights and sounds of a world that seemed increasingly distant and separate from his own. He thought about how Bitcoin could reshape this world, making it more equitable and less prone to the whims of central authorities. As he recuperated, he spent time thinking about who he would send his white paper to. He needed feedback and constructive criticism from economists, computer scientists, cryptographers and anyone else who could provide valuable insights. He needed to know if there were any glaring errors or oversights in his work, any blind spots that he had missed. He also considered the implications of his work being known. Despite the pseudonym he had chosen, he was aware that the authorities might eventually trace the origins of Bitcoin back to him. He needed to tread carefully, making sure that he was not breaking any laws or regulations in his pursuit of his revolutionary idea. 
Once he felt sufficiently recovered, Alan returned to his study. He began the task of identifying individuals and organisations who would receive this white paper. As he started sending out his work, he braced himself for the onslaught of critiques, doubts and perhaps even hostility that might come his way. But Alan Turing was no stranger to adversity, and he was prepared to face whatever came his way. As the summer of 1952 turned into autumn, Alan found himself once again facing the scrutiny of MI5. A knock at the door one afternoon interrupted his ruminations. Two stern-faced men in dark suits waited at the threshold, their eyes as cold and unyielding as the concrete streets outside. Mr. Joring, one of them began, his voice even and measured. We have been aware of your recent correspondences concerning a proposed electronic cash system. Alan remained silent, observing the two men as they scanned his living room. It has come to our attention, the second man continued, that the nature of this work, should it be released to the public, could destabilise the nation's economy and undermine the British pound. It's seen as a direct threat to national security. The severity of their words hung heavy in the room. Alan, however, remained composed. He had anticipated this. And I suppose, he said, his tone steady, that this is in violation of the Official Secrets Act. That is correct, Mr. Turing, the first agent confirmed. As per the Act, any communication of information which may be or is intended to be directly or indirectly useful to an enemy is a criminal offence. We must insist you cease all communication on this subject. You are to keep this Bitcoin of yours a secret. Is that understood? Alan simply nodded. Understood. As the agents left his home, Alan stood alone, enveloped in silence. His work had always been a solace, a refuge from a world that seemed increasingly alienated. Now, it seemed, even that had been taken away from him. But as he sat there, he did not feel despair. Rather, a sense of resolve grew within him. He knew the importance of his work, he knew its potential, and he knew that, one way or another, he would find a way to bring it into the world. As the days shortened into the bleak midwinter of 1952, Alan found himself ensnared in a cycle of despondency. The lack of progress on his Bitcoin project, a work he believed could revolutionise the world, had become a ceaseless source of frustration. Simultaneously, the reality of his inability to share his groundbreaking research gnawed at him. The effects of the hormone treatment compounded his suffering, as the chemical concoction coursed through his veins, altering his biology in unsettling ways, he found his strength waning. His vitality, once a constant companion during late-night problem-solving sessions, was replaced with a perpetual wariness. His hands shook occasionally as he tried to sketch diagrams or write code, a tremor in his fingers that seemed to mock his attempts to continue his work. Turing, the man who had single-handedly cracked the enigma, now found simple tasks to be Herculean. His physique began to morph in ways that felt alien to him. He was undergoing feminization, a side effect of the stilbostrol, resulting in the formation of breast tissue, among other things.
While he had never been overly masculine, this shift in physical form felt like a violation, a cruel reminder of the price he was paying for simply being himself. Nevertheless, the notion of giving up never crossed his mind. Despite the loneliness, the pain and the depression, a spark of determination remained within him. He was also aware of the chasm between the current state of computing and the capabilities required to make Bitcoin a reality. However, the enormity of this task did not dissuade him. He firmly believed that Bitcoin was not just an economic revolution, but a social one, a tool to empower individuals, free them from central authorities, and lead to a more equitable world. The vision of a better future became his lifeline, an anchor in the turbulent seas of his life. He would persevere, he decided. His mission was clear. He would dedicate his life, in whatever capacity he could, to laying the groundwork for the Bitcoin network. It may have been decades away, or perhaps even longer, but he would do whatever he could to set its wheels in motion, and in doing so, he would leave behind a legacy far greater than he could ever have imagined. During this time, Alan barely left his study. The outside world with its prejudice and its rigid laws felt far removed from his world of abstract thought. His work became his lifeline, his solace in these dark times. It was during these days of intense focus that the final pieces of the Bitcoin puzzle started to come together in his mind. With each passing day, Alan's vision for a decentralised digital currency was becoming clearer. It was a slow, laborious process, but Alan felt a glimmer of hope. Bitcoin was no longer just an idea, it was taking shape, becoming tangible within the confines of his study. The year 1953 was one of significant change. The nation was immersed in the celebration of Queen Elizabeth II's coronation, a new era symbolised by her ascent to the throne. Meanwhile, in his study, Turing was ushering in a different kind of new era, one rooted not in monarchy but in mathematical principles and distributed power. Day after day, he revised and fine-tuned his white paper, Bitcoin, a peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash system. It was a dance of intellect, each step intricate and essential, each move delicately placed to maintain balance and coherence. And yet, the satisfaction of this academic ballet was tinged with a bitterness, a sorrow born of isolation a creator unable to share his creation, a thinker bound by the very system he sought to revolutionise. Despite the pressures, Turing continued to work diligently. Each sentence of the white paper was crafted to convey his revolutionary ideas with precision and simplicity, making it accessible to economists, computer scientists, and anyone with an interest in the intersection of technology, economics and society. As the nation celebrated the coronation, Turing's study remained a silent sanctuary. The echoes of cheers and jubilation couldn't penetrate the thick stone walls of his home, much like his secret, which couldn't leave the confines of his study. The biggest breakthrough of his career was reduced to a mere whisper in the grand theatre of history. The irony was not lost on Alan. He was creating something designed to decentralise power and democratise finance in a society where he himself was marginalised. The isolation was debilitating, but it also gave Turing a kind of stubborn resolve. 
He immersed himself in the white paper, rewriting, rechecking, perfecting. He might have been forbidden from sharing his work, but he would not be prohibited from refining it, making it the best it could possibly be. His intellectual child, Bitcoin, would grow up in the shadows, nurtured by the unwavering dedication of its creator, waiting for its time to emerge into the light. As 1953 bled into 1954, Allen continued to explore the conceptual crevices of his digital monetary system. He found a peculiar comfort in the quiet rigour of his work, the rhythmic hum of his mechanical calculator, the sharp smell of graphite and ink, the expanse of mathematical proofs that sprawled across sheets of paper. These became his loyal companions, steady anchors in a turbulent sea. He would often lose himself in the maze of equations and theories, his mind threading through complex concepts with the agility of a nimble dancer. He was painstakingly constructing a theoretical foundation that was not only robust but adaptable, able to withstand the test of time and technological advancement. Through the silence of the night and the bustle of the days, the first draft of his magnum opus evolved and grew. It was not merely an academic paper, but a testament to his unwavering spirit, a message in a bottle thrown into the vast sea of time, hoping to be discovered and understood by future generations. Yet, the shadow of secrecy was a constant spectre. It tainted every breakthrough with a hint of melancholy. The knowledge that he was forbidden to share his ideas, his most profound creation was a bitter pill to swallow. It chafed against his very nature as a scholar and a scientist. His duty to secrecy, enforced by the state he had served in the war, was a cruel paradox. May of 1954 found Alan on a respite trip to Blackpool. The coastal town, with its sea air, offered him a change of scene and a chance to breathe. The hormone treatments had ceased some months ago, and little by little he was beginning to feel a reclaiming of his own body, an easing of the burdensome fatigue that had blanketed him for so long. Blackpool, with its noisy arcades and bustling promenade, was a sharp contrast to his silent and sequestered life in Manchester. The salty tang of the sea air, the clamour of seagulls, the ceaseless lapping of the waves against the shore. It was a sensory overload, but not an unwelcome one. He allowed himself to be swallowed by the crowd. The anonymity afforded him a strange sort of peace. He'd always found a certain pleasure in observing others. The way people moved, spoke and interacted. It was as if life itself was an intricate dance, and he was the spectre, watching from the wings decoding the steps. As he walked the stretch of the sandy beach, he watched families with their picnic baskets, couples holding hands, children building sandcastles, snapshots of life that were so far removed from his own existence, yet strangely comforting. In Blackpool, Allen was just another man, an ordinary face in the crowd. He could lose himself in the anonymity, momentarily forgetting the looming secret of his monumental work, his clandestine legacy, the white paper that was concealed in the depths of his satchel. But even amidst the distractions of Blackpool, his thoughts often wandered back to his work, to Bitcoin. As the sea breeze tugged at his clothes, he found himself thinking about the principles of his system, its potential to change society, 
and its sheer brilliance. And for the first time in many months, despite the continued secrecy, a small flame of excitement flickered within him. Adam found himself in one of Blackpool's small back alleys, away from the bustling promenade and the noise of the crowded beach. There, nestled between a fish and chip shop and a souvenir stand, was a tiny fortune teller's shop. Its front window decorated with arcane symbols and inviting tarot cards. Entering the shop was like stepping into a different world. The air was heavy with the scent of incense, and a dim light gave the interior an otherworldly feel. At the far end of the room, separated from the rest by a curtain of richly embroidered velvet, sat a woman. Her face was lined with age and wisdom, her eyes piercing yet kind. Sit, she gestured, towards a chair across from her. Alan obeyed, his curiosity piqued. He watched as soon as she shuffled the deck of tarot cards, her movements smooth and practised. When she finally stopped and laid three cards on the table in front of him, he felt an odd sense of anticipation. Her old, weathered fingers traced the figures on the cards. You are a man of great intellect, she began, and you are carrying a great burden. A slight shiver ran down Alan's spine as the fortune teller's roomy eyes met his, her gaze intense, unblinking. With the edges of her worn shawl wrapped tightly around her, she leaned across the small table and turned over another card. What you are creating, she said, in a voice that seemed to carry a hint of sorrow, is a gateway, a portal that will lead society into an uncharted era, a realm of possibilities and wonders the likes of which the world has never seen. Alan swallowed hard, feeling the weight of his work, his silent creation pressing down on him. He already knew, in some corner of his mind, the significance of Bitcoin. He understood that he was crafting a key that could unlock a digital revolution, a transformation that held the potential to redefine the way society functioned. But, the fortune teller continued, her voice turning solemn. The cost of this gift will be dear. The path you've chosen, you will not be able to see the end of it, not in this lifetime. Your sacrifice, however, will pave the way for a future you can only imagine. Alan felt a hollow sensation in his stomach. The woman's words resonated deeply, echoing the fears he had been trying to suppress. The knowledge that he would never see the fruition of his work was a bitter pill to swallow. His Bitcoin, the culmination of his life's work, was destined to be a gift he would give, but never receive. And yet, even as he walked away from the fortune teller's shop, a profound sense of calm settled over him. And yes, he would not live to see the impact of his creation, but he knew that his work had a purpose, that it was a beacon for the future, and with that knowledge came a sense of acceptance, of peace, the sacrifice would be his, but the reward would belong to humanity. Alan returned to Manchester, the words of the fortune teller echoing in his ears. The grey buildings and familiar cobblestone streets, drenched in the pale glow of twilight, felt strange to him. The world seemed to be both incredibly real and incredibly distant, as if he was seeing everything from a different plane of existence. He settled back into his study, a quiet sanctuary filled with the silent chatter of his thoughts. 
He looked at his work on Bitcoin, the intricate details on the sprawling plan for a digital revolution. He considered the audacity of it all. He had conceived something that would change the world, and yet he was barred from sharing it, and furthermore, he wouldn't live to see its impact. He pondered over the fortune teller's prophecy, his gift to humanity that would only arrive after his sacrifice. It was a heavy truth to bear, but he felt a strange sense of calm acceptance. His work on Bitcoin had always been driven by a deep sense of responsibility and commitment, not the desire for recognition or success. He was creating something that transcended him, something that was for the greater good. If his sacrifice was the catalyst needed for this new world to emerge, then so be it. However, the thought was not without its melancholy. He would not see the new world, the digital Eden he was trying to create. It was a loss that seeped into him, colouring his days with a deep undercurrent of sorrow. Alan Turing, the man who broke Enigma, the man who envisioned the dawn of a new era, the unsung architect of a digital revolution, had come to terms with his fate. As he continued to refine his creation, his silent magnum opus, he understood that he was carving his legacy, not on the stones of recognition, but in the unseen foundations of a future he would never witness. Alan sat at his study, the room illuminated by the warm glow of his desk lamp. He looked at his neatly written notes and diagrams, the foundational blueprint of a new monetary world order. His eyes rested on the designs of algorithms and systems, far too advanced for the computers of his time. It was a reality he had long come to terms with. He was too far ahead of his time. His Bitcoin project was a grand vision that depended on technology that simply did not exist. It was like being a painter with a vivid imagination but no paint or canvas to bring the image to life. Yet his mind was far from defeated. If the technology couldn't catch up, perhaps the minds of his time could. The underlying principles of his Bitcoin system were mathematical and logical, capable of being understood by the leading thinkers of his day. He considered the idea of running a scaled-down version of his system manually, employing both human computation and existing computer technology. In his mind he saw a network of people, economists, mathematicians and computer scientists, each performing their role in simulating a part of his digital monetary system, an analogue version of his digital dream, a theoretical proof of concept, a way to test his system and refine it further. The idea breathed new life into his work. Alan was not only crafting a blueprint for a future technology, he was designing a revolution that could even start in his own lifetime. This was his chance to see his creation come to life, not in complete form, as a promising precursor to a future world order. He understood that his idea could face scepticism or even outright opposition. The establishment might view it as a threat, an affront to the status quo, but he knew that great leaps forward often required great courage and audacity. He was willing to take that risk for the vision of a more equitable, democratic financial world. That was a cause worth fighting for. His room filled with sheets of papers, diagrams and charts, as he translated complex computations into simple human tasks. He used the tools of his time, adapting them to his groundbreaking concept, 
creating a bridge between the present and a future not yet arrived. The result was an amalgamation of digital brilliance and analogue practicality. Bitcoin now recast for the era of analogue computers and manual computation. His idea was no longer a distant vision, but a tangible solution, a concept that could be tested and refined in the here and now. He was creating a toehold for his revolutionary idea in the current paradigm of thinking. With this analogue version of Bitcoin complete, Alan prepared to share his work. He assembled a list of potential recipients, academics, fellow computer scientists, economists and influential thinkers. He drafted cover letters explaining his concept and encouraging the recipients to consider its potential. He packed each paper carefully into his envelopes, sealed them and addressed them by hand. His hope was that the idea would resonate with some, who would then spread it to others, creating a ripple effect of understanding and acceptance. He knew this was a risk. His concept could be dismissed as fantasy or worse. It could be seen as a threat by those in power but it was a risk he was willing to take. In each envelope, he was sending out not just a theoretical concept, but a seed of change, a chance for a more equitable and democratic future. He knew he would not see the full bloom of this seed, but he believed in the promise of its potential. Dear esteemed reader, I write to you as someone committed to bettering the world through scientific exploration and understanding. My name is Alan Shoring, and in spite of my endeavours being mainly based on theoretical computer science, I have recently been drawn towards the area of economics. In particular, I have been contemplating the evolution of money, and how technology could potentially revolutionise the way we perceive and utilise this important societal tool. In the spirit of transparency and intellectual pursuit, I am enclosing my work on a novel financial system that I believe could fundamentally alter our society. I call this system Bitcoin, a portmanteau of binary digit and coin, encapsulating its digital analogue nature. Essentially the money is a digital entity represented by a series of binary codes, a combination of ones and zeros that are unique to each coin. These codes or keys form the coin's identity, its value. However, the question remains, how can we handle these digital entities with the technology available today? Here, the analogue aspect comes into play. Each digital coin will have a corresponding physical token, a representation of digital identity. These tokens, similar to physical coins or banknotes, can be exchanged, saved and used in commerce. Verification and tracking of these tokens will be carried out through ledger books maintained by trusted parties. Entries in these books will be validated using cryptographic methods to ensure the integrity and authenticity of each transaction. This provides a security measure to the system, protecting against fraud and misuse. It's crucial to understand that these physical tokens and the ledger entries are merely representations of the digital coins. The real value, the true coin, exists in the binary code, unchangeable and unforgeable. This concept may be challenging to comprehend at first, but the premise is simple. The physical token is a bridge, a link between our traditional understanding of money and the digital future.
in this proposed system, we look at not just digital analog hybrids, but a vision of the future. As technology advances, I foresee the operation transitioning from analog to fully digital, rendering the physical tokens obsolete. I envisage the emergence of machines capable of executing the cryptographic functions that would enable the system to operate autonomously, thus leading to the complete decentralised and democratisation of money. Through this system we find a balance between the security and structure of traditional economics and the potential of digital technologies. This Bitcoin system offers us a roadmap towards a new era of financial independence and equity. This proposed transition may not be an immediate one, but it is a step in the right direction towards our inevitable destiny. I trust this provides an initial understanding of the Bitcoin system. I believe this system provides the potential to redefine our financial institutions and societal structures. By engaging with these ideas, we can work together to help us usher in this new era of economic progress. I urge you to pursue the enclosed documentation carefully and to give serious thought to the ideas contained therein. I believe that this could be the beginning of a monetary revolution, one that democratises wealth and power. I encourage you to engage in this conversation and to share these ideas with those around you. I eagerly await your thoughts and insights on this matter. Yours sincerely, Alan Turing. Alan meticulously compiled a list of academic institutions, universities, research institutes and financial institutions across the UK. In addition to Oxford and Cambridge, he included the London School of Economics, Manchester University, Edinburgh University and King's College. He also included major banks, insurance companies and trading firms in London's financial district. He carefully printed and packed his academic paper, making sure each package included his explanatory letter and an academic paper that went into far more significant details about the system's inner workings. Each package was handled with care and a sense of excitement. Each one represented a potential ally, a spark that could help ignite the revolution he was envisioning. Alan then made his way to the local post office, stacks of these packages in his arms. He could feel the weight of them, the physical manifestation of years of work, and potentially the beginning of a new era in human economics. As he watched the post office clerk stamp and process each package, he felt a mix of anxiety and hope. He was revealing his secret work, potentially violating laws and risking his personal and professional reputation. But if he could convince even a fraction of the recipients to consider the possibilities his new system offered, he believed it would all be worth it. After ensuring that the packages destined for the UK were on their way, he returned to his study. There he prepared the next batch of packages, those to be sent to the east coast of the United States. He included MIT, Harvard, Princeton, Yale and Columbia University, as well as Wall Street's major banks and financial firms. June 1954 arrived, bringing with it the calm cool of summer. For Alan, the season bore a certain significance. 
It was not just another summer, but one where he finally felt a sense of release, a freedom from the ceaseless turning of the intellectual wheel that had been driving his life for nearly a decade. With each letter sent, he felt a weight lifting off his shoulders. Every postage stamp affixed was a testament to his conviction, each destination a potential birthplace for his ideas. The system, the grand vision that had consumed him for so many years, was finally out there in the world, ready to be studied, criticised or embraced. His mission, as he saw it, was drawing to a close. Whether or not people took up his offer was now out of his hands. He had done his part, giving humanity a blueprint for a new kind of money, a new kind of financial system, and perhaps even a new kind of society. The realisation of this fact was strangely liberating. Alan found solace in the familiar hum of his machines, in the mathematical puzzles that still intrigued him, and the seemingly mundane routine that now shaped his life. He wandered around Manchester, visited the cinema, met friends for lunch. It was a quiet, uneventful existence, but it was one that he cherished. Despite the adversities he had faced, despite the trials and the challenges, he was finally at peace. He had laid the foundation for a revolution he might never witness, but the knowledge of having done his part was enough. As he walked down the streets of Manchester, he felt the world spinning on, oblivious to the monumental change he had just set into motion. In the quiet hush of the late night hours, the pounding on his door jolted Alan awake. He rose from his bed, heart pounding in his chest, as he moved to answer the door. It was past midnight, the world outside was cloaked in darkness, and he had not expected any visitors. The cold, stern faces of the men in black suits and ties awaited him as he opened the door. Their badges glinted ominously in the faint light streaming from the nearby street lamp. MI5, one of them said curtly. There was an undercurrent of tension that seemed to grip the very air around them. They were not here for a social visit. Alarm bells rang loudly in Alan's mind, but he forced a calm exterior, inviting them in with a quiet, Please come in. The men spread out in his living room, their gazes taking in everything, their presence oppressive. One of them held a stack of letters in his hand. Alan's heart sank. They were the letters he had sent out, the blueprints of his revolutionary financial system, the letters that contained his hope for humanity's future. One of the agents spoke, his voice cold and steely. Mr. Turing, you are in direct violation of the Official Secrets Act. Your financial system is deemed a potential threat to the security of the nation. In the quiet darkness of the night, Alan stood, the enormity of the situation looming over him. This was his life's work, his gift to humanity, and now it was being viewed as a threat, an act of treason. As the agent's stern eyes bore into Alan, they continued their grim pronouncement, their voices carrying the cold, final note of judgment. We're sorry, it has come to this, Mr. Turing. The decision has been made at the very top. Your idea, this revolutionary financial system, is a leap too far ahead, too powerful. Your knowledge poses an unforeseen risk.
The words hung in the silent room, each one heavy with implication. Alan watched as the agent shifted uncomfortably under the weight of their duty. The state cannot permit this to go any further, the lead agent finally declared, his face revealing a glimmer of regret. You have been found guilty of high treason in absentia for the violation of the Official Secrets Act. A wave of shock washed over Alan, yet he stood tall, his gaze never wavering. He knew his revolutionary ideas could provoke fear, but he had not anticipated this. His voice was calm and steady when he finally spoke. I see. I suppose there's no room for argument in this matter. The agents remained silent, their expressions unyielding. The enormity of what was happening struck him. This was the end of his journey, the curtain falling on his life's work. Yet he felt an odd sense of peace. He had done all he could. He had given humanity a choice, a glimpse of a future that could be. His role was done, his gift given. Whatever would come next was beyond his control. For a long moment, Alan was silent, lost in a whirlwind of thoughts and emotions. His life's work, the ultimate defiance against the supremacy of the state, was to be silenced forever, just as he was to be. The irony of it all was not lost on him. The government that he'd once served so faithfully was now the agent of his impending doom. The agent opened a satchel to reveal an apple inside it. This apple, Mr. Turing, contains a poison. You will not feel any pain. His gaze moved to the apple, its innocuous appearance concealing the fatal poison it held. It sparked off a series of associations in his mind. The innocent Snow White falling prey to the wicked queen's poisoned apple. Isaac Newton's epiphany as an apple fell from a tree, and of Adam and Eve partaking the forbidden fruit, the forbidden fruit of technology and change. All these instances, when seen through the lens of his current predicament, seem to echo a common theme. Knowledge and understanding came with a heavy price, and sometimes that price was the ultimate sacrifice. He saw himself at a similar crossroads, his pioneering work held the potential to redeem humanity from its reliance on traditional currency and offer a new way of trade and commerce. But much like Adam and Eve, he had to pay for seeking knowledge forbidden to him, and much like Snow White and Newton, his fate would too forever be intertwined with an apple. A dry trickle escaped him as he reached out for the apple, accepting it from the agent holding it up to the light. He observed its seemingly benign exterior. It seems the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, he mused aloud, his voice steady. Then, with a resigned smile and a last look at the agents, he took a bite, embracing his fate and the role he had to play in humanity's redemption. With the taste of the apple still lingering in his mouth, Alan looked towards the agent, his eyes steady and clear, his voice resonated in the room as he said, Remember this, the greatest changes always come at a cost. Today, it's my life. Tomorrow, it might be the very system you protect. But no matter how long it takes, remember, the seeds of change have been planted. 
One day they will bear fruit. With a final glance at the apple in his hand, he continued, This is my Eden, my forbidden fruit, and with it I leave behind the seeds of a new world. With these last words hanging in the air, he took another bite of the apple. His gaze softened, and there was a calm acceptance in his eyes as he laid back, letting the poison do its work. Even in his final moments, Alan Turing, the father of modern computing, and in this world, the architect of Bitcoin, remained unflinching, his mind always on the future he had envisaged. The agents hardened men, who had seen much and said too little, stoically watched as Alan Turing took his last breaths. Once his chest fell still, the room filled with a heavy silence, only broken by the distant tick-tock of an antique clock. It was a life snuffed out far too early, a brilliant mind silenced, yet they couldn't afford the luxury of regret. One agent, his eyes as grey as the overcast Manchester sky, gave his partner a curt nod, and they set to work. Their mission was not complete. They had to make it look like a suicide. No signs of foul play, no suspicions raised. A man, brilliant but tortured, choosing to end his own life. That was the narrative they had to create. Leaving children's lifeless body on the bed, they made their way to his study. The room was filled with the palpable remnants of the genius that had inhibited it. Papers were strewn across the desk, full of complex equations, diagrams and paragraphs of text that would change the world if left in the wrong hands. But they were not to read them. They knew the importance of ignorance in their line of work. The less they knew, the better. Methodically, the agents collected every piece of paper, every scribble, every shred of Turing of groundbreaking work. With the room stripped of its intellectual wealth, they left, leaving behind only the ghostly whispers of the brilliant mind that had once thrived there. The legacy of Alan Turing was to be nothing more than a memory. His genius buried, never to see the light of day again, or so they thought. As the agents drove down the rain-soaked streets, Turing's papers, his legacy, rested in a nondescript briefcase between them. They headed to the heart of the country's secret services, London, where these documents were destined to be locked away from prying eyes. Upon reaching their destination, the hushed corridors of the MI5 headquarters, they handed the briefcase to their superior, a man known for his steel nerves and unreadable countenance. As he opened the case, the room held its breath. Turing's work, even without understanding it, had a palpable weight to it, a sense of gravitas that was impossible to ignore. He sorted through the papers, occasionally pausing at Turing's neat handwriting, the complex diagrams, the meticulously explained concepts. He was not a man of science or technology, but even he could sense the significance of these documents. Then he came across the white paper, Bitcoin, a peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash system. This was what had been the catalyst for Turing's demise, his audacious idea to revolutionise currency and power structures. He set it aside. From the rest of the papers, an unknowing action that separated Bitcoin from Turing's other works, 
giving it its own trajectory. The head of MI5, a man who received orders from only the highest echelons of power, had no understanding of the complexity and potential implications of the digital currency. Nevertheless, he felt a strange reverence towards the paper in his hands. It was the birth of an idea that would reshape the world. It was an idea, though, that had to be controlled, silenced, kept dormant until the world was ready for it, or until they were ready to wield its power. With the white paper tucked securely in his briefcase, the head of MI5 navigated the labyrinthine corridors of power towards an inconspicuous black door, numbered 10. Downing Street had been witness to countless historic moments and critical decisions, but today it held an entirely different sort of meeting. A nod from a nearby security officer granted him entrance, and he crossed the threshold into the hallowed chambers. The interior held an air of aged grandeur and an echo of countless whispered secrets. Walking through the silent corridors felt akin to traversing history itself. He was led into a spacious room where he found the man who needed no introduction. Seated in a high-backed chair near a roaring fire, Sir Winston Churchill. The weight of his leadership during the war years was still etched on his face, his stern eyes reflecting his determination and gravitas. He was a man known for his decisive action and powerful speeches, but today his voice was subdued. There was a tension in the air, a sense of unease. After all, they were not here to discuss war or national security in conventional terms. No, they were here to discuss the future, a future that was encapsulated in the white paper the head of MI5 carried in his briefcase. Churchill gestured to the seat opposite him, and the head of MI5 took his place. His briefcase was set on the table between them, a Pandora's box of revolutionary ideas, and with the silent understanding that they were entering uncharted territory, the two men prepared to unravel the work of a man who had dared to envision a radically different future. The room was filled with a palpable tension as Churchill looked at the briefcase. His gaze drifted to the window, beyond which lay the city he had fought so hard to protect. He had stared into the abyss during the war, leading his nation with unwavering determination. And now the abyss was staring back at him from a humble sheaf of papers. The head of MI5 cautiously opened the briefcase, revealing Turing white paper. The stark simplicity of the title, Bitcoin, a peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash system, belie the revolutionary ideas held within. Churchill took the paper in his hand, his aged eyes scanning over the neat handwriting. It was clear from the start that this was not an ordinary document. This was a blueprint for a radical shift in the societal order. He had led his nation through times of great change before, but this was different. This was not a war fought on the fields of Flanders or over the skies of London. This was a silent revolution, one that promised to upend the very foundations of economic power. He sighed deeply, leaning back in his chair. There was indeed something of the Greek tragedy about Turing. A man of exceptional brilliance, blessed and cursed 
by the same mind that saw beyond the horizon of his time. It was not lost on Churchill the parallels between this situation and that of Prometheus, the titan who gifted fire to mankind, only to be eternally punished by the gods for his audacity. But such is the cost of progress, he murmured under his breath. His gaze returned to the paper, and he began to read. Churchill's gaze remained locked on Turing's white paper, his mind wrestling with the ethical implications of his decision. The head of MI5 watched silently, sensing the weight of the moment, but careful not to intervene. Finally, after what felt like an eternity, Churchill spoke. The primary duty of government is to safeguard its people, to ensure that the realm is defended, that order is maintained, he began, his words echoing around the silent room. Sometimes we must make choices that clash with our personal convictions, choices that are difficult, even heartbreaking. His eyes met those of the MI5 director. Alan Turing was an extraordinary man, a genius whose contributions have shaped the world we live in. It's not a decision I take lightly to have curtailed his life, his potential. He paused, his voice heavy with regret. But his latest idea, Bitcoin, is a power too immense for our time. It could upend the balance of power, disrupt society in ways we cannot predict. He gently placed the paper back into the briefcase, closing it with a resolute snap. One day, the world might be ready for Turing's creation. I believe it will usher in a new era, a new way of thinking. But for now, we must ensure stability. We must defend the realm, even if it means bearing the burden of such a painful decision. Churchill stood, his silhouette framed by the window, overlooking the city he had dedicated his life to protect. His decision, though wrought with sorrow, was final. The world was not yet ready for Turing's revolutionary idea, but he held onto the hope that one day it would be. Yes, Churchill's voice became steady and decisive. The white paper shall be kept in the most secure vault we have. The Bank of England houses a place safer than any other in the world. It shall be there. Turing's genius cannot be destroyed. No. It must be preserved. He rose from his chair, the strains of age apparent in his slow movements. The light streaming through the window of 10 Downing Street was fading, casting a soft orange glow across the room. The shadows danced on his face, highlighting the lines etched deep from years of service and duty. The bank's vaults are designed to withstand any eventuality. They will protect Turing's idea until the world is ready for it. It will be our silent testament to him, a recognition of his genius and the future he envisioned. One day, I hope the world will understand. Churchill handed the briefcase back to the head of MI5, his gaze conveying the gravity of the task. With Churchill's legacy now preserved in the safest place in the world, the two men shared a quiet moment of reflection before parting ways. Their shared secrets safe within the impenetrable walls of the Bank of England. As the final words were exchanged between Churchill and the head of MI5, the sun disappeared beneath the horizon, marking the end of an era 
and the beginning a new, uncertain one. The documents containing the revolutionary concept for decentralised currency lay dormant in the depths of the Bank of England, bearing the name Bitcoin. The years passed by, and Turing's memory started to fade from public consciousness. His story overshadowed by his tragic end, and the silence enforced by the Official Secrets Act. The truth of his work remained hidden, a tightly guarded secret in the highest echelons of British power. Turing's vision for a world where financial freedom and privacy was a right for all was, for the moment, just that, a vision. Meanwhile, the world moved on. The fabric of society continued to be woven, oblivious to the paradigm-shifting idea held in the deepest vaults of the Bank of England. Governments rose and fell, technology advanced, and the global financial system continued to flex and adapt to the pressures of the post-war world. Yet beneath it all, the seed that Turing planted lay dormant, waiting for the right time to emerge. Epilogue The summer of 2008 was a time of financial pandemonium. Above ground, markets were in freefall, currencies losing their value with each passing day. Governments, seemingly helpless, scrambled to bail out banks, while the world's economy was teetered precariously on the brink of collapse. The corrosive decay within the banking sector was evident. Corruption was so interwoven within the system, it was no longer discernible from the government. Confidence was wavering, trust was eroding, and a seismic shift was imminent. Far removed from this mayhem, in the clandestine confines of MI5, an echo from the past was about to reverberate. Here, in the bowels of the most secretive establishment, a few hand-picked individuals were privy to a monumental secret, the legacy of Alan Turing, his final work, Bitcoin, a peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash system, lay preserved, waiting for the right time. As the world grappled with the unprecedented crisis, the decision was made. In a clandestine meeting, with the ominous weight of their responsibility hanging heavy in the room, the decision-makers of MI5 determined the fate of the world. It was a decision of colossal magnitude, a decision that would reshape the very foundations of the world economy. The realm needs saving. The stability of parliamentary democracy and the country's economic prospects are at stake. It's time, time to release Bitcoin for Queen and Country, the director announced solemnly. The room was thick with silence, every man and woman aware of the gravity of the decision just taken. A new era was about to begin, born from the ashes of the old, a world that Alan Turing had envisioned but had never lived to see. The torture had been passed, and it was time for a new dawn. In the subsequent days, behind the scenes, an operation of unprecedented secrecy was set into motion. The manuscript Turing had left behind, his most powerful and transformative creation, was carefully retrieved from the high security vaults of the Bank of England. It was a momentous occasion, marked by a solemn reverence 
for the genius who had left behind this potential antidote to the world's financial plight. A chosen few cryptographers pored over the white paper, subtly altering details here and there to update the white paper in lieu of the updates in computing in the years since Turing's assassination. At the same time, the world outside was descending further into economic turmoil. News headlines screamed of the failure of another financial institution, of another country seeking bailout. The public was losing faith in their governments, in the banks they had once trusted with their life savings. The world was desperate for a solution, for a glimmer of hope in these dark times. And so, Alan Turing's final creation began its journey, slowly at first, but with a steady determination. It was an idea whose time would come, an idea born out of necessity, out of crisis. The seed that Turing had planted over half a century ago had finally begun to sprout, unbeknownst to the world that was on the brink of a new financial era. A digital revolution had begun, promising to change the world in ways Turing had only dreamed of. Under the shadow of a global financial crisis, on a day synonymous with disguises and mysteries, the Bitcoin white paper saw the light of day on October the 31st, 2008. Released under the pseudonym of Satoshi Nakamoto, the document marked a profound understanding of economics and cryptography, set out the framework for a decentralized digital currency. The academic paper, titled Bitcoin, a peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash system, started circulating among a select group of computer scientists. Anonymously posted online, the paper proposed a decentralized digital currency, an alternative to the crumbling traditional banking system. The world was oblivious to its origins or the historical significance behind it. For them, it was a potential way out, a lifeline in an ocean of uncertainty. To the world at large, Satoshi was an unknown entity, a genius arising from obscurity. Yet, to a select few within the shadowy corridors of MI5 and the secure vaults of the Bank of England, this event was a culmination of a secret kept for over half a century. Turing's fruit, Bitcoin, had finally been introduced to the world. Bitcoin was met with a mix of intrigue and scepticism. As economies crumbled and trust, and traditional financial institutions faltered, a decentralised currency free from governmental control seemed like an appealing alternative. But it was also something completely new, unproven and unconventional. In the years that followed, Bitcoin took root. Its significance and influence steadily grew. The world started to comprehend the transformative power of Turing's final gift. Born out of necessity and crisis, an idea sown in the past began to shape the future. In the grand theatre of history, the curtain had been drawn and the world was on the brink of a new financial era. Turing's vision, his sacrifice had not been in vain. Bitcoin, the digital Eden he had conceived, was becoming a reality. Turing himself may not have lived to witness its birth, but his legacy lived on, echoing through time, silently shaping the world in ways he had only dared to dream.